everybody. This is Amanda Reyes here with the Made for TV Mayhem Show. I'm so excited to be here. I'm going to pull the curtain back a little for a second and show you guys my soundboard. Normally when I play the opening song, I just play a portion of it. But that was the uh, opening theme to The Woman in Black, and it's so beautiful. I had to play the entire thing. It's not quite as beautiful as when Suzanne Somers sings in Zuma Beach, but it's very close to being perfection. So um, you might have guessed that The Woman in Black is one of our films tonight. So we are covering Ghost Stories for Halloween, which is sort of a play on words that hopefully my UK listeners will get. It's sort of a Ghost Stories for Christmas sort of play on that. So we decided to do two maybe supernatural tales that are kind of in a way very similar and kind of in a way very different. Um, so of course we're doing The Woman in Black from 1989 and also from 1989 is something called The Haunting of Sarah Hardy which is a made for cable movie that I have loved for years and years and years and I'm really excited to talk about it tonight. It's um, it's a really fun one. And I brought along my two friends. Dan, tell us how you are. I'm doing okay. I'm uh, I'm a little scared. I'm a little haunted. But I'm having a good time. Um, you know what? Um, generally, I don't have a problem with women in black. But when they scream and rush up to your face, I got issues. So, But we'll talk about that as we go. But I'm doing okay at this moment. So. Good. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Uh, Nate, how are you? Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, I have to say. And I kind of can understand where Dan's coming from. I uh, also don't mind women in black, but not so much when they're trying to kill me. Also, they're yes. green. Also, when they're green. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. green and black look really good together. I've been known to wear some green eyeshadow with my black attire, but uh. um, but black <laughs> blush and black yeah. foundation and black base powder. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't look good. It doesn't. But yeah, what, go what, ahead. what were you wearing when I met you a couple of weeks ago? I was wearing probably brown eyeshadow because I was traveling and I didn't. I couldn't mm. bring my entire case of makeup ensemble yeah yeah <laughs> that's right we met just a couple weeks ago yes yay, yay. finally good great yes dan and i nice never met and so i was in la for 36 hours <laughs> and i was awake for 30 of them i kid you not um and it was because they premiered eli ross history of horror uh, the first part of the slasher episode, which is so the Eli Ross history of horror is a documentary series that's currently running on AMC and will still be running. I think when this episode comes out and I am featured in a couple of the episodes talking about stuff I don't remember talking about cause it was really scary <laughs> to be interviewed for a TV show. And so the, anyway, they premiered one of the episodes at, uh, beyond fest. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. At the Egyptian and they screened it with maniac, which is one of my all time favorite films. So, so good. So yeah, good. so I thought it was super important for me to go and not look at the screen when I was on camera. But it was really fun, and if you get a chance to watch it, Eli Ross History of Horror, check it out. If you get a chance to see Maniac and you haven't seen it, then what are you waiting for? Go see that for sure. And yes. uh, Dan, I think, let me get drunk. And yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, I did try to get you to look when you were on there. I, I think I kind of gave you a half nudge, sort of like, hey, I, I think you might be on screen sort of thing. And I don't remember you. I think you looked for a second, but you yeah. didn't look the rest of the time. And I said, I yelled out loud, it's my friend Amanda and I'm looking and enjoying and loving. <laughs> was, it, was it like that scene in Hardcore? Turn it off! Turn it off. That's my daughter yeah, yeah. up there! Turn it off! Turn it off! Turn it off! No, no, it was not. I can't get that George C. Scott um, 
intensity going. So, yeah, that's what I was, was feeling was, when I was watching it. I was really, <laughs> I was really like not into it. But anyway, it was, it was a good. It was experience. wonderful to meet you. Yeah, it was great yeah. to meet you, and it was, it was great to like go to the festival. And it was great to go to LA again and see some yeah. of my friends, and um, I had a really good time. And then I went to New York like a week and a half later. <laughs> And mm-hmm. I presented at the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies yeah. at the Brooklyn Film Fe- Horror Film Festival, and that was amazing, too. And I got to meet some more people I never met before, um, and uh, some Twitter friends, and um, and people I hadn't seen in a while came, like my friend Lance from Kinder Trauma, and, oh, wow. uh, and John, cool. his partner, and that was amazing, mm-hmm. too. So I'm really exhausted, and I'm surprised I even had a chance to watch <laughs> these two films. But these are two films that I love, so I'm really looking yes. forward to discussing them. I and have I- to say that now, um, through Amanda, um, like the whole six degrees of separation thing, I've met everybody I've done podcasts with. Because Amanda's <laughs> yeah. met uh, Joseph, uh, Eric, and Justin, and mm-hmm. Dan. So. That's right. That's yes. right. Yeah, I have. I think I'm the only person who's met everybody from the Stereo Continues that wasn't just a guest that came on. Yes. But the core four. Yeah, I think I'm the only person on the planet who's. Oh, actually the core done four. It. Is that what you guys are called? <laughs> I never knew that. It's like better than the Fantastic Four, the core four. It's where the core. They're the, it's weird. They're the core four. Yes. And so. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited to have that honor. Um, Justin is the only one that I've propositioned. So. Oh, sure. Yeah, give me a little time. I'll work on everybody else. But anyway, <laughs> so um, I guess we should get started. So yes. uh, like I said, we're doing The Women in Black and The Haunting of Sarah Hardy. And I think we decided they're both in 1989. I tend to go chronologically or by the most famous to the least famous. But this one I thought I'd go from the most cerebral to the more, uh, it's not really batshit, but the more out there kind of film. So mm-hmm. um, so we're going to start with The Women in Black. Dan, why don't you go ahead and uh, let us know what's going on in this movie? Okay, let me let me let me give you some info here. Uh, the it's it's uh, we're in um, England. Uh, we're in uh, I think it's the early twentieth century. I actually don't know what what year this is set in. Now now that I I'm saying it out loud, I think um, it is. I, I think it is. I want to say just because they use wax cylinders, and that was a Thomas Edison thing from the end of the nineteenth um, century, start of the twentieth. Uh, and so I'm gonna, I'm going to say around then. But you meet a young uh, lawyer, young solicitor named Arthur Kidd. I'm just going to call him Mr. Kidd. And he is um, uh, his boss, who's kind of a jerk, sends him to a town called Crithen oh, Cr- Cr- Gifford. I'm so glad I you did that first. Yeah, I don't know how Cr- to say Gifford, which is kind of in it's 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 sort of like you you've seen an American werewolf in London, where they sort of end up. You know, Morris, that's that yeah. sort. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of more or less a variation of where he ends up. And he is sent there. He has to attend the funeral of a woman named Alice Drablo, who was um, a widow who lived on this great house. Um, it's one of those houses and not quite a Baskerville Manor from the Hound of the Baskervilles, but it's almost like that kind of thing where it's it's just this glorious house sitting. It, it actually looks more like the castle at the end of Monty Python at the Holy Grail which is kind of sitting in the, on this little piece of land in the middle of all this water and muck. And, and you just see this, this big house that she lived in and she, she died there and she never, um, there was only one guy, I forget the guy's name. Uh, well, I'll say his name in a moment who, Oh, uh, Keckwick, a driver yes. who used to, who was the only one who could maneuver through the marshes when the tides weren't in, he would go to see her and he's the one who found her body. So kid is sent there to basically take care of the estate 
and um, and go to the house and and see what's worth what and and sell the property and that kind of thing. And he it, it begins with him getting on a train with a gentleman, a, a local, um, uh, uh, a local at in the city or in the city in the town uh, named Sam Tuvey, and they have a chat. Excuse me, you dropped this. Thank you. I couldn't help noticing. Uh, Mrs. Drablo. Yes. Don't tell me you're a relative. I'm her solicitor. <sighs> On the way to the funeral? I am. You'll be about the only person that is. Well, I gather she had no immediate family. No friends. An old woman living alone, you might expect her to be a bit of a recluse. So you might. Mr... My name's Arthur Kidd. Sam Tuvey. You evidently knew her, Mr. Tuvey. Well, hardly that. Not in recent times. I had no cause to visit her. And even if I had... Oh, boy. <laughs> so <laughs> so rude so, yeah yeah it's 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 one of those towns um where he when he arrives there and he kind of brings up um uh mrs D- uh, Drabble's house is eel eel marsh house yes. i mean i guess i guess you could have come up with a better name but um uh and and no one sort of really wants to talk about it and he goes to the funeral and the only person at the funeral apart from the priest is the local uh a local solicitor um, however, during the uh, during the ceremony, he sees a woman dressed in black, which is not a, a, an, an abnormal thing at a funeral, standing way at the back of the church. And he sort of they're leaving later on, and and he says he says to um the, the solicitor, uh, kid says to the solicitor, hey, uh, well at least she had one uh, person who came to see her. What are you talking about, man? And he said, no, the woman in black. What woman in black? Oh, that woman over there and standing amongst the gravestones is the woman in black. And the solicitor's like, yeah, man, you're nuts. Okay, so don't um, let's pass on that. There, there's a there's an interesting sort of uh, side moment here where a kid goes to like a um, like a like a like a, a like, uh, it's not a farmer's market. That's what I'd call it here. But it's like um, it's not a boot sale because they don't have cars. But it's, it's just <laughs> somewhere like, it's between like a bi- that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a big free for all, and all the all the people are out selling their wares and stuff. And there are a lot of like I, I want to say are they gypsy children? Yeah, or, they or, call them gypsies. I think in the in the movie. Yes, and and. Um, there's a truck uh, filled with uh, logs, lumber, and and it a bunch of it falls out on a child and sort of cripples her. Um, but but kid is able to pull her out of there before it can kill her. That that I'm just going to leave that there. So so what happens is um, yeah, a kid can't get any info from any anyone in the town about Eel Marsh House, and he's like, hey, whatever, you know, and, whatever. and I whatever, Yo. you know, I will. I, I will say just because um, one thing it's a sort of tie into the fact that he saved the child. Um, uh, Mr. Kid is married and has two kids who we see early on, like a five year old and one child he calls like a zero year yes. old, yes. which I really liked. Um, so, so he, he's got a wife and two children who aren't, his wife isn't so thrilled that he's going away for this, this, but anyway, so he, uh, kid meets up with this guy named Keckwick. Who's the driver? Who is who? Who? Yeah, found found Mrs. 
ding dong. What's her name? Drablo. Found Mrs. Drablo. And he takes kid out to the house, which is really this great house. I mean, you got to see it. It's so good. You know, you you get marshes or swamps or quicksand. I'm in. I I will watch it all day long. So he drops kid uh, off there and kid begins to sort of examine the house and he walks around the house a bit. He walks outside the house and there's sort of a, a graveyard near the house. And he sees the woman in black again. Oh, so scary, isn't it? Oh, God. And she just. Because, like, he's got his back to her, right? And you don't see her either. And he feels something like on the back of his neck. And he looks over and he moves just a little. And she's just standing there staring at him. And it's so freaky. It's so, it's, yeah, it's so good. So he kind of like runs into the house, like, ah, as you do, (laughs) as you would. And, and so he begins to uh, examine the house and he finds. Kind of, it's a, it's a regular house, uh, and he he finds. Uh, well, okay, I'll just start with. There's one door that he can't open. There's a room that he can't open the door to, but he finds a room with lots of stuff in it. And I actually, I actually forget if this was after this scene. I think it's after this scene, but I'm just going to say it here because my synopsis stops stops shortly. He finds a picture of a woman mm. who looks a lot like the woman in black. And he finds two uh, death certificates. And and from what we can tell, the names don't mean anything to him or to us. He finds some wax cylinders and he begins to record on, you know, as you do. You know, if you like back in the day, if you had a tape recorder, it was like you turn it on and go, hi, my name is Dan. You know, he, he finds a wax cylinder and he's like, hi, my name is Arthur Kidd and I'm in the uh, Drablo house. And then he puts on this wax cylinder that um, uh, 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 Mrs. Drablo recorded and it, well, it freaks him out a bit. This is Arthur Kidd. I'm in here, Marsh House, among all Mrs. Traveler's rubbish. love that because i expect english people to be more eloquent and yes she's like it's bad and then that makes it scarier to me because like she there's no words right for what's yes. happening yeah it's almost like to, to me it was like when they find the evil dead tapes you know and and it's like it's this crazy uh moment where it's like what what it's but that's for our discussion i'm gonna finish up my synopsis 
and just say that what happens here is here's the point where kid says, all right, I'm out of here. I know that uh, Keckwick is going to pick me up and I know that um, I might get lost in the marshes. I don't care. So he packs his little valise and he's heading out and he heads out onto the um, the sort of windy road that leads away. And there's a lot of mist and stuff like that. And he hears the um, I was going to say horse and carriage. Is it a uh, trap? Is that the name of, of, of what it's called? But it's, um, uh, but the horse and carriage more or less is approaching and he hears it approaching. And then all of a sudden it just goes crazy. And you hear a woman screaming and you hear a child yelling, mummy, mummy, and yelling over and over again, you hear horses and craziness. And it just, and he's just standing there looking around going, what in the hell is that? And you can't, you can, there's nothing. He can't see anything through the mist. And then it all stops. And when the mist sort of more or less clears, there's nothing there but Mr. Keckwick approaching in his horse and carriage. And he's like, okay, man, get me out of here. And he's heading back to town, and he, he's going to be a good boy, and he's going to return. Uh, he's going to return with a dog named Spider, which we can talk about, which is super fun. But he has been super freaked out by the woman in black, the wax cylinders, and these strange, strange-ass noises that he heard in the mist of people apparently dying in the marshes. And I'm going to leave it there, and we can spoil as we will. But let's talk about the woman in black. Okay, so who saw this for the first time? Hand, my hands in here. Nate? I had seen it before. Okay, oh. let's start with Dan then. So what do you think? Oh, 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 um, I, oh. Really, I really, oh, <laughs> um, I, I really like, I, I'm a huge uh, Nigel Neal fan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Nigel Neal, um, uh, uh, he was Quatermass, yes. you know, and I, my, my, one of my two or three uh, favorite shows of all time, which he actually hated, is Doctor Who, and Doctor Who was born more or less sort of of a lot of different things. Correct. Um, but one of them was Quatermass. That's right. I was reading that he turned down doing Doctor Who, right? Didn't they approach him at some point? And he yes. said no. Yeah, it's. I th- I think like early in the '60s when they started Very Lambert, the 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 producer, she she went to him and said, "Hey, would you write?" Because he'd done hey. the Quatermass already. Hey, would you would you <laughs> write for this? And he was like, "Ah, this is crap." And I I just I just don't think he um I I don't think it was his sort of. I I think the thing is, if you watch like Quatermass, the character Quatermass, he's sort of throughout most of the run of Doctor Who, he's the almost opposite of the Doctor. Um, he's, and, and so I, I can sort of see how he, he thought that, but there are Doctor Who stories, um, like Image of the Fandel and the Demons that are very much like Nigel Neal could have sued for those stories, but he has very much, he, I, I love the way he writes, writes, it's very deliberate, it's very calm and it builds and it builds. And then he starts to throw in these crazy moments. We like, What? And then it just gets it's nuttier and nuttier. And then you hit a point where he's either going to explain it or you think it's being explained. And then you sit there and it ends and you're like, what the hell? What? What? You know, I I don't. Uh, yeah. And um, so Quatermass and he had a show called Beasts, which I really loved. And of course, he did the wonderful Stone Tape. I don't know if you guys have mm-hmm. seen Stone no, Tape. No, but I'm familiar with it. But let's talk about The Woman in Black. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the woman in black. So the woman in black is sorry. Sorry. Um, um, no, the woman in black is. I, I I just think it's really great. I love. Um, it sort of, it sort of begins where you see all the sol- young solicitors kind of hanging out, goofing off, and then you get the sort of the. Um, I, I don't know if he's the the head guy in the firm or whatever, who's very like 
kid, do you want to be a part of this firm? And then get the uh, clean the egg off your shoulder. Or, you know, he had food on his shirt or something like that. And uh, there's there's just this sort of wonderful you, you send this guy to the middle of nowhere and there are little intimations of things are screwball. And then they just get crazier and crazier. And I, I I don't know if this is one I can watch that often, but I've watched it twice. And the second time I got more out of it than the first time. And I really like, I mean, there were moments that really chilled me. There were moments of revelation where I was like, wow. And I actually, earlier today, I told a friend of mine who had never seen this and said to me, I'm never going to see it, so spoil it. And I told them the entire story. And they were like, wow. That's pretty great. And I said, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy it. So, yeah, I enjoy it. I mean, it's not like The Haunting of Sarah Hardy is, has much quicker pace mm-hmm. to it, I think. Um, but I think the deliberate pace for this, because it's much more intelligent than The Haunting of Sarah Hardy, works. Um, so, yeah, I, I really I, – I don't know why I hadn't seen this before. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I, I, I thought this was a, a really creepy and a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. It's really good. It reminds me so much of The Ghost Story for Christmas. It fits right in perfectly. Yes. And I only really became familiar with that series in the last couple of years. And I've watched almost oh. all of them now. I think there's only one I haven't seen. No, there's two. Have, 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 you, have you seen, um, what is it, uh, Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Darling? Or No, or that's the one I haven't seen. seen. I haven't seen the first yeah. one that's in black and white. I love and there's that one. one that came okay. at the very end that's not like a period piece. That I haven't oh. seen either, um, but everything in between those two, I have. Gore Blimey and I covered them on his Trilogy of Terror. Yes, episode. great. great yeah, episode. it was yep, really yep. fun to do that because I'd seen a couple of them already. But um, anyway, I don't want to get off topic. You can listen to Trilogy of Terror and and get the gist. But oh no, no, I'm sorry, I just forgot what I was going to say when I was listening to you talking about Gore Blimey. I haven't talked to Gore Blimey. In I just a while. talked to him today, and he gave me some help with the trivia. Yeah. So uh, I'm really excited oh, to get wonderful. to that part. So. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. No. Oh, oh, here was my, my one thing. I'm sorry. Yes. I just realized what it was when I said to this person who I told the plot to, they said, Oh, when did this air? I said, it was uh Christmas Eve, 1989. And they looked at me, Christmas, Christmas Eve? Eve. And I said, well, and I, I began to explain how Britain has this ghost story at Christmas time uh, tradition. And even after I'd explained it, they looked at me like, no, no, no. No, you watch Rudolph or Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. I was like, no, no, just get it's scared. In, it's in the trivia, but I'll say it here. So the Susan Hill adaptation, you know, it came from a novel by Susan Hill. And in Susan Hill's story, it starts with them telling a ghost story. So actually, it follows it to the letter in terms of the tradition. Okay. Um, did she Did she write it? I, I know it was in the 80s. Did yes. she write it? kind of 83 83. we'll talk about her in a little bit but anyway so she but she did it she framed it around telling stories around a fire on christmas eve so that's really great um uh nate tell me what you think of the woman in black um i really like the woman in black a lot i remember when i first watched it um it was being touted as one of the scariest movies ever made um i remember several people telling me that and when i watched it i mean it's probably couldn't live up to that height but it's still a really good moody kind of film and that scene in the bedroom. Yes. Um, and you both know what I'm talking about. That terrified me when I first yes. saw it. I thought that yeah, was absolutely definitely, a yep, very yep. frightening moment in that movie. And this movie is not something that there's a lot of jump scares in it. So mm-hmm. when it happens, it has a lot of impact. Yes. Yes. Um, 
A hundred percent. Um, uh, the movie, I think this movie to me is just very much dripping with atmosphere. I feel like even in scenes where, you know, there's not necessarily any immediate danger, uh, you almost kind of feel like there still is. Because the, the whole thing with the woman in black is she's kind of in the shadows or like off in the distance um, for, you know, better part of the first you know half of the movie or most of the movie, actually. Um, so I don't know, to me, it just sort of feels like, um, there's danger, but you just don't know when exactly it's going to strike and they build up tension very well doing that. But as far as the woman in black goes, I think it's great. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's not one I could rewatch a lot. And mainly the reason why is because ultimately it is kind of a downer of a film. <laughs> That's not insulting. Yeah. I'm just yes. saying like, <laughs> It's a little bit of a of a sad movie. It's very melancholy to me. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think it's a great film. Yeah, I I agree. I saw this for the first time. I guess I was still living in L.A., so probably a little over ten years ago. And I saw it because I too had heard that it was like the greatest thing that ever happened. And you know what's so funny is the first time I saw it, the whole subplot. It's not really a subplot, but the whole premise of the woman taking children out of the town went over my head, but it's so obvious. And they even talk about it that like, I don't understand why I didn't get that. And so it's interesting because you know, the uh, original protagonist in Susan Hill's book is named Kips and they changed it to kid for the adaptation, which is interesting because it's all about children. Really, even though you don't really see a lot of children, it's all about losing children and about this town without children. And so it's interesting that a guy comes in named Kid, and he's sort of targeted, right, by the woman in black. Now, of course, he's targeted because he saved somebody. It's sort of like um, Final Destination in that way. You oh, know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. he, he changed the course mm-hmm. of something, and so therefore it had to keep coming. But it switched, it switched its goal, I guess, of what it wanted. It stopped wanting the little gypsy girl and wanted the kid, but he's still you know, a kid if you look at his last name. So that was kind of interesting to me. And I don't know how that plays in the novel because I haven't read it. So anyway, I thought it was good the first time I saw it. I enjoyed it, but I don't think I was really obviously paying as much attention to it as I should have. And then that scene happened in the bedroom, and I screamed so loud. And there's only a couple times I can remember (laughs) really screaming during a movie, and that is during Tourist Trap. There's something about those mannequins made me scream at the beginning. And um, there was one other movie, and I'm totally forgetting what it is. Oh, it was just in my head. So there's only been three times that I can remember – visibly like oh my god like screaming and um and it stayed with me and even though i've only seen this film i've seen it just three or four times total but even though i know that scene is coming it never i don't scream but i can't really brace myself for it either like there's no way to prepare yourself for the imagery and the way it happens it's so brilliantly done and like I just even just thinking about it now freaks me out. It's so good. It's so good. But even without that scene, it's a really solid movie. I think that's the one like big scare. You know, the one like obvious like freak you out. Oh, the haunting. The original haunting has a scene in it that I scream every time I watch it, and that's when the person appears mm. at the top of the spiral staircase towards the end. Oh yeah, uh, yep. always gets me. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, I loved it. And then I watched it again a couple years later because I was going to review it for my blog. And I was like, God, this is so good. It's so good. It's so meticulous and it's so well paced. And like just this couple scenes we talked about where like she's standing in the field 
and he feels yeah. her like that's so good it's so it's so creepy and it it maintains that level of dread throughout the entire film and it's like Nate said it's like there's danger everywhere but you never know where, when it's going to happen and it's never just like mm-hmm. a loud bang like in these n- new movies all the kids are watching you know where it's all like jump scares <laughs> do you know what I mean it's more than that it's more than that like yeah. even when like he just finds a little soldier doll and then it keeps appearing yeah. like that's nothing and it's terrifying at the same time. And so it really captures like almost lackadaisical isn't the word, but it's almost like a quiet kind of terror, you know, that you can't put words to, which is why it's so interesting that she said she came to me and it was bad. You know, like I can't even, I can't even go further yep. than that. I have three letters I can give you and that's going to explain what happens in this house every fucking night. And so, yeah, it's just really good. And so I loved it. And, um, and I never kind of forgot the woman in black, like, uh, the silhouette of her, you know, um, Mm -hmm. like she just stays with me. And so like, even when I see images of it online or you see the cover of the book and you know, whatever, it just, it's chilling. And so it's just a very effective film and it's wonderful. And I think it shows how good TV can be when, when it's in the right hands. You know, like you don't yes. need a big screen yeah. for this. It doesn't have to be like this big cinemascope, whatever. It's just a little film that does exactly what it needs to do. And it does it so well that very few films have been able to touch it. And, you know, and that's just because the people who made it were good at what they were doing. So, and ghost stories, as I've said, work better on the small screen anyway, because it's like you're watching people being terrorized in their home and you're in your own home. So that adds like a, a another level there, I think, of anxiety. Uh, that you don't get in the movie theater so anyway yeah i loved it and i'm really glad you guys both enjoyed it so i guess we can start talking about some of the stuff that happens in it it never goes off the rails you know what i mean but like it goes off the rails you know it does go (laughs) out there are a couple moments where like what's he doing Uh, you know yeah and the ending the the last scene I I the i just watched that like three days ago was the first time i saw it and the final scene i was like oh Oh no! What? And it was like you no. Yeah. Wow, they. Did I guess that? I guess I should say, and I meant to say this at the beginning. If you haven't seen either one of these, you should see them first because it's worth it to watch the movies and not be spoiled on them. Yeah. And um, and so I would suggest you do that because they both sort of have twists in different ways. So and we're we're gonna untwist them. Do you, do you do you might have a sound bite that gives a little background? Am oh, I right? yeah, or am yeah. I so lying? here's where they kind of talk about the woman in black's motives, and then we can sort of talk about her uh, justifications for what she's doing. Destruction. When she's seen here in the town, anywhere, what comes of it? Haven't you guessed? Say it. Somehow, a child dies. Illness or accident. It follows quick after. That gypsy child. Aye. You saved that one. But there were others. Lots of others. Hi. Beautiful kitty she was. I'm not thinking to look at him. She was five. And you? 
us as well. So this is like a really sad movie, like Nate was saying. Yes. Because because not just the ending of the film is sad, because you you sit with Kid through the whole film, and he's a very likable character, and I think he's compassionate. But like, the whole reason why the woman in black exists is tragic, and then what she's doing to the town is tragic, right? So it's like it's so as Arthur Kid goes along, he starts to find all these little clues, and he finally breaks into the room that had been locked and, and he had not been able to get into. And it's a children's, it's a child's room. And there's all these things mm-hmm. in there. And there's this little soldier doll. I think it's a soldier. and Like a tin, little lead or tin soldier yeah. or something like that. It's just like yeah. a little tchotchke for a kid. And it's like, um, yes. <laughs> you know, tchotchkes for kids. Or, that's what Yay, tchotchkes. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think there's a crib or something. And we find out that the woman in black, and I'm forgetting the name of the woman that she was before she became just the woman in black. But... I'll see if I can find but out. She, um, Je- Jeanette Goss. Jeanette? That's right. Jeanette. Jeanette, Jeanette Goss. Yeah, yeah. She's, um, she came from like a, a pretty well-to-do family, I believe. And she got pregnant out of wedlock. Is this correct? And they took the baby from her and gave her to Mrs. Drablo, who was her sister. Yes. And, um, mm-hmm. and she pined for this child because, of course, it's hers and she loved it. But she couldn't have it because it was illegitimate and her family couldn't stand it. It was basically what happened. So she went to retrieve her child and she was in a carriage. And on her way with the kid, who was five or six, I think, at the time, um, she fell into the marshes. Like, ah, mommy, yeah. mommy. Ah. And, and so what you hear over and over again in the film is the replay of her death and her child's death. And so... And it gets so yeah, crazy. The noise gets so crazy. And, and it's so much about a life unfulfilled and the death of a child that so fills her spirit that she goes to the town and seeks revenge on all of these like pretty innocent people, I would imagine, who have kids. Yeah. And she, like they say in that clip, they um, make them. She makes them sick, or she just outright kills them right away, and she takes them. And and the whole town just lives this way. And Miss Strabble in particular must mm-hmm. have lived in I don't know what every night, but like. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And what's also really interesting about this, and we'll actually maybe now is a good place to to bring it up. So James Wan. And Lee Wan L are big TV movie fans. And one of their favorite TV movies is something called The Haunted from 1991, which I want to cover eventually. It's really good with Sally Kirkland. And it introduces the Warrens, you know, who you'll see in the Conjuring movies. And oh, yeah, uh, yeah. it doesn't introduce them. I mean, they existed and they were famous. And they were a poltergeist, sort of. But, like, um, also, if you remember, the first Insidious has a woman in black, like, figure in the further. Mm-hmm. And um, another really interesting thing that I hadn't realized is that, like in The Haunted and like in The Woman in Black, the ghost can, it haunts you. It doesn't just haunt your house. Mm-hmm. It followed kid. So like so like that's another element from the um Juan Juanel factory there that they took from a TV movie. That is really interesting that I didn't really pick that's up awesome. on. Yeah. yeah. And so it's so he can't escape his fate, basically. And the more I think about it, the more I think this is Final Destination and Final Destination took Xanax and was in the eighteen hundreds <laughs> or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's super cerebral <laughs> version of that. It's about how you can't do, you can't change fate. So like the fate of the town is like we have to live with this. It's beyond our control. But he fixes it by saving, not fixes it, but he he, he messes it up by saving that kid. He puts it on himself. Yeah, without yeah, realizing yeah, it. He's doing yeah. something that any man would do, especially a father, right? And mm-hmm. and he does this incredible act to save this little girl just because he's a good guy. And now he's targeted for death. And not just him, but his whole family. 
And there is the weird thing. Actually, a scene that I, I loved where he goes back to like the senior partner. Oh, yeah. And and after everything, and the, he's like, well, we've got the trunk with all the stuff. And Kit is like, I know why you didn't go there, because you were scared to go there, because you knew something like this would happen. And and it's just like the look he gives him, like, you piece of garbage. You sent me in there, and you... You, he, I, he doesn't say like you've damned me, but it's like you, you sent me into this horrible place because you were too chicken shit to do it yourself, and you, you know it's like, and the guy, that actor, I know that actor, the older actor from a bunch of stuff like the Singing Detective, and he's always sort of this obsequious kind of ugh, kind of guy, and it's just like you're like, uh, kid, give give him hell because you're probably about to get something from hell so <laughs> i guess that's what we look at but let's go back up a little um and let's talk about i guess we'll talk about the big scare in the movie so this movie really in a lot of ways it doesn't need this scene to be a really effective film but in other ways it's building up to this one particular scene so kid if all the secrets are revealed and kid had gone crazy in the house and and uh that man had come to pick him up whose name i can never remember what's his name again Kekwick? Kekwick? Was it Kekwick? I thought it was the guy he met on the train. That was somebody else. Oh, Tuvi. Yeah, Tuvi. Yeah, Tuvi comes to save him because at one point Spider takes off to the marsh and he's... Can, can, and can I just say that one of the coolest things is that halfway through the movie, Kid gets a sidekick, a cute little dog. You know, so it's like, hey, you know, it's like dog from Petticoat Junction. You know, it's like, hey, this is fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, but it's not fully fantastic. But it's yeah, sweet he's to got have this dog. dog, and he even says into the little recorder that the dog has been giving him great comfort, and he's pretty uh, attuned to everything that's happening in the house. But then he opens the door, and usually Spider, which is the dog's name, is is good about coming back when he's called. But he takes off into the marsh, and he somehow manages to get back into town and show up on Tuvi's doorstep. And then that's when he's like, oh, I better go see what's happening at Eel Marsh House. So, you know, he picks him up, and they have that conversation that we heard. And he's basically like, this town is basically damned to lose to every child that they ever have at the age of five or six. And that's just how it is. And so... He's like, kid is like, I can't wait to get home, guys. I'm so taking off tomorrow. That's the end of it. And so he goes to bed, and it's this very quiet scene. He's back into the boarding house he had originally started at. And he's laying there, and it's kind of a restless sleep, right? He's dealing with stuff. And he opens his hand, and that little soldier's in his hand. And then mm-hmm. he just kind of rolls over, and then... The woman in black is basically like floating above him, but she's sort of at the back of the bed, like at the end of the bed, moving up towards the front of the bed. And she's, I can't even explain how scary the scene is. I, yes. I, I can describe it to you, but there's no oh, way to like tell you how scary it is when she just shows up like that at the foot of his bed. I'm just, you're not expecting it. Uh no, yeah, yeah. And he just starts yeah. screaming I, like a girl, right? <laughs> and he can't, and that's it. <laughs> he like he can't stop yeah. and he covers his eyes and he's like, "Oh my god." Like he can't even function cuz he's so terrified and I'm as terrified as he is. I I think the the one scene I semi compared that to um in my mind, although it's not quite the same is in the original uh is it the Hong Kong version of the eye uh when the gal is in the calligraphy class. And she's doing the calligraphy, and suddenly she realizes there's another student there who says, "Like, what are you doing at, at my desk or something like that?" Well, I don't, I don't know. What are you doing at my desk? Well, I'm just doing this. And then the next shot, I've seen the eye over the past like 15 years about a dozen times. Every time I see this shot 
of this woman's response to what are you doing at my desk? Uh, my, I can feel my heart like either go up into my throat or drop down around my ankles. And that's, that's the, that's the way this shot is. If you know that scene from the eye, this scene is very much like that. It's quieter because the eye is like 1999 and things were louder then. But, um, that's what I thought of when I saw this scene. I just thought, oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to have a heart attack <laughs> and I'm going to die. And I'm just going to, she kills all of us. You know what I mean? Yes, ex- exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where she's so in your face and so loud. It's like when, when I, um, when I, when I, uh, the house I grew up in, uh, was on the corner of a busy intersection. And at least like once every night, a really loud motorcycle would go by and wake me up. And when the motorcycle would go by and just hear like, I would just like wake up. Like I I would do that bolt upright thing in bed. And I like, I was like five years, six years old and my heart would stop. And that's what this is like. Like she's in your face and you're like, I'm dead. There's nothing I can do. We're all dead. dead. It's over. Yep. Nothing. Nate, what did you think the first time you saw that scene? Oh, I mean, it was it was terrifying. (laughs) That was what really that's what really got me uh, that scene. But I I think that is the way it is for everybody. It's sort of like um, it was just so unexpected to me. It kind of reminds me of how I felt the first time I saw the classic uh, hallway scene in The Exorcist Three. Oh yes. Oh, that's another great scene. Yeah. Because that that scene like really affected me when I saw it because it was just it was so out of nowhere, Mm -hmm. and it just I don't know. I I guess it just it really caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting it. You know, I just saw The Exorcist Three on the big screen um, like a month ago for the first time. I saw it on the big screen, and it has not diminished with age at all. It is still brilliant, and that scene is so terrifying it's still terrifying even though i know it's coming it's like the woman in black you can't really brace yourself for it you just have to let it happen but the first time i saw the exorcist 3 i watched it it came on our local channel and i watched it with my mom and we were just kind of watching it it was on and it was good you know we enjoyed it and then that scene happened and then we were on the couch together like next to each other like holding each other through the rest of the film. And I mean, I've never done that before, but it scared us both so bad that we were like, oh, because we wanted to finish it because we were really enjoying it. And then then we were like, but I can't watch it by myself over here on this chair. I have to sit with you on the couch. And we just like, we were terrified. And so I guess that that memory also stays with me when I I think of that movie, which makes it kind of a warm film in a weird way. But like um, to see it again on the big screen, there were lots of people in the theater who had never seen the film at all. And so, like, it was really great to see that. So I just went and saw the new Halloween, which I know has getting mixed reviews. But, like, it was the first time I can remember in a long time watching a new movie in a theater where the audience was, like, visibly reacting to some of the stuff that happened in the film. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, my God. Like, I heard that. And it was really fun to, like, be in the theater and have that experience, right? So... But anyway, but the woman in black in a way is, is building up just to this one scene, right? Just <laughs> to like, kind yeah, of, you yeah, know what I mean? And it's just, and it's just gripping. But then the film goes on for quite a while afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it's got the, the, the this yeah this this wonderful the the scene yeah where um he he yells at his boss and then the scene that I I I guess we're spoiling it now. I don't know that this is a spoiler. Well, we should say but he goes, we should say he falls into like a fever. Like he's so impacted, he's not yeah. dead. But, like, he's so impacted by what's happened that he's, like, basically, like, in a a self-induced coma of some sort for, like, days. And they don't know what's going to happen to him. And so they call his wife. 
and she comes to him and he like wakes up days after the incident and he's like without words for what happened much like the woman that mrs drablo yes yeah and he he uh yeah and, and you get a, you get you do get one more lovely scene with him and his kids and like his mother-in-law or, or her, his i think it's a mother-in-law because i think she said her, she had sent for her mother to take care of the kids Yes. Yeah. And, and, but there, yeah, there's a scene where he goes and he yells at his boss and his boss says, well, look in this trunk, which is the trunk with all the stuff in it. And there's just, and this scene, just because having once worked in a law firm, um, uh, one, there were no fireplaces in any of the, um, uh, uh, offices, although they're probably, the main guys probably had fireplaces, but there's just a scene where he's, uh, he's tearing through this trunk, trying to find the, the little soldier and he's throwing all these papers around and they're landing by this little fireplace that's in there. And then there's just a moment where he lights everything on fire and it's just like, what is he doing? And it's just like, it's. And then, and I, I do like that. I think, I think at that point they fire him. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe that's, that's, that's possibly a Yeah, good the idea. metaphor yeah, of the I fire know. led to him being Yeah, fired. I get it. Yeah. So, yeah, but, but that's, so, yeah, so there is like literally after that stuff with the crazy ass scene with the woman in black, there's at least another 15 minutes, 10 yeah, minutes. Yeah, there's like 15 the or so minutes because you have to, like, he's yeah. kind of dealing with everything that's happened. And I kind of like that because mm-hmm. you get back into the sort yeah. of sense of complacency, like, oh, he made it. And, um, and, oh, everything seems okay. He's really shaken by this, but like, he's okay and everything will be okay. And so Mm. then the wife is like, you know, let's just go somewhere for a couple of days with (sighs) our family and let's just relax. And, you know, he's so much the family man, you know what I mean? And so like this to him is like, to me, two kids screaming at me all day is not a vacation, but for him it is. (laughs) And so like, he's like, let's go on vacation with our screaming kids. You know, it's comforting to him, right? His children. And so, Mm -hmm. and then they're sitting on this boat and there's this other, the the last fantastic scene in the film. So he's just on the boat with his kids and they're playing around and having a great time and relaxing. His wife's there and they're under this tree and everything is really beautiful. And then he looks out and there's she's standing on the water. Like mm. Rick Ocasek in that video, Magic. Right? Oh, <laughs> Just like Rick Ocasek. Oh, this magic, Jack. This is hell. Just like Rick Ocasek. And, and, but it's not him. <laughs> it's not him, guys. It's not the lead singer of the Cars. <laughs> you, 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 you might think it's him. <laughs> yes. But it no. ain't. No. And, so, and, and it's terrifying because she's on the water just standing there. And then... This tree, this giant tree, part of the tree breaks off. It's not really a branch. That doesn't really make it sound right. And this huge chunk of the tree falls and hits their boat and capsizes it. And then that's it. Dead. Dead. They're gone. Four of them. Yeah, this beautiful little family. Gone. Gone. It, well, it's funny because this is the end of the 80s and we'd seen so many films in the 80s where this kind of crap happened at the end of movies. But you don't expect it to happen here. You hope that maybe he'd somehow gotten away, but she doesn't rest in where the hell, wherever the hell it was um, that she came from. Uh, I'll Krithen, Krithen Gifford. Yes. Uh, she, she's not resting there. She's coming after him because she... Uh, whatever it's, I'll swallow your soul. She is after whatever it is that that she was needs. It, was it and the AKA like, I'll swallow your soul? <laughs> it was. It was the woman in black, AKA I'll swallow your soul, written by award winning writer Nigel yeah. Neal. You know what though? Yes. It, it, yeah. it is like a lot of endings. I think, and I think you're right, but it's also not because it's an entire family, and it's like a very oh, yeah, little yeah, children. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like you don't. Yeah, you don't usually get like a one-year-old getting killed by a 
ghost no, at the end of a movie. and it's so upsetting because it's also very quiet because it settles into this sort of peaceful, like the water just quickly like goes back to its sort of restful state and all you see is like the boat in the capsized way, like just the top of it. Yeah, yeah, you see like an, an oar yeah. and like the top boat and it's just like, and, and I was, I sat there watching going, you're going to end here. You're going to end here. Really, Christmas Eve, nineteen. What is wrong with the British? <laughs> Explains so much about those that's guys, crazy. doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> that's that's crazy. Yeah, I know. So I realize so much about Gore Blimey now when I watch stuff like this. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> what were you? What was going in your you brain at that time? But like, um, yeah. So it's got this. It's 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 not as shocking as the scene with the lady over his bed, but it's it's a, it's shocking in its own way. And then that's it. There's no release. You're done. Yeah. You're done. That's it. Yep. She's claimed everything she needed from them. And I, I presume she goes back to um, uh, Kathy Griffin. Where, where, the, where is it at? Where I forget the name of the, the town. Hoda is it Kathy Gifford, Hoda or whatever? Kathy Gifford, <laughs> whatever it is. They, I presume she goes back to there and gets back up to the same junk she's been getting. Although, although they do say they burnt the estate that's down, where, so maybe, oh, maybe that, that's why she that she went. Might, she's looking for a home. And uh, she's got to live under that boat. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go out there. I always wondered about that. Did you ever see that movie, The Others? Not the John Ritter one, but the one with Nicole Kidman that came out like 20 years ago or so. No, I I haven't, but I've seen the other one. Well, there's this whole idea. I I don't want to spoil too much about it, but like if you're a ghost, you kind of have to, wherever you die is like where you end up dwelling. And I was like, what if you died in like a parking garage? You know, didn't we get that? Wasn't there? Wasn't I there think there was. I would think there was, and it's and yeah. there's like there's like, well, what if they tear down your house? Like, you know, it had. I le- it left me with all these questions. Oh, and they re, re yeah, and they they restructured. I feel like that's something too, or maybe. Well, the the thing about the stone tape. Well, have you no, seen I haven't. You I haven't seen. So I won't say. It. Okay, I, w- I, I want to see it. I'm really it. bad okay. about the the British uh, telefilms. I need to see more of them. I'm just getting into them now. So it's, uh, yes. Uh, the stone tape Nigel Neal has themes that he goes back to and sort of the themes of the 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 horrors of the past and 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 coming uh hitting the future hitting the pre- hitting the, well the future because the few, I'm thinking of now but hitting the present are worth and even think of like Halloween 3 Stonehenge you know um having this right. thing that 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 yeah, and um, and I always loved. I've always loved Halloween three since I first saw it when I was like eleven on you know like on HBO in nineteen eighty three. So you know I, I knew there was something good in that, regardless of 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 what else went on. Oh, love it! Well, I love good. It. So uh, I want to just do the trivia so we can move on to the next film. So I, I, we're all in agreement yes. that everybody should see the Woman in Black. Am I right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. Okay. So everybody, go out and watch it. It's a perfect Halloween movie, even though it was made for Christmas. Um, it's a perfect American Halloween movie. I guess those crazy Brits can watch it yes, exactly. <laughs> as they're doing up their trees or whatever. So, um, so as Dan said, this aired on December twenty fourth, nineteen eighty nine, on ITV. It did have a rerun on Christmas Day in nineteen ninety four on Channel Four. So while you're drinking your eggnog, that was probably like a pretty enjoyable revisit. It has some theatrical screenings at the uh, BFI South Bank in twenty sixteen. Um, I will tell you, I actually found the ratings for this, and I didn't write out what Gore Blimey told me, but I don't understand the ratings in England. Uh, they don't necessarily make sense to me, and I'll tell you why after I tell you what happened here. So they do things by, uh, they look like our rating shares. Um, they're split in two different numbers, but they have one called Millions, which is obviously either the 
a millions of people who watched it or the millions of homes who had it on when it originally aired. That's 8.1 million homes or million people watched The Woman in Black when it originally aired. But then it has a slash and a number uh, that's called the TVR. I guess, mm. and that's 16, and that's not the TV rating, because the TV rating for the week was number 52 out of 90 shows, so it had middling ratings when it originally aired, but what confused me about the ratings, and I've seen this before, this one did the full 90 in a row, I've seen them cut out by region, and that's where I got confused, so the top the uh-uh. top six shows to air the week that The Woman in Black aired, number one through three was Coronation Street. Number four, yeah. Oh, that fucking yeah. show. Number Sorry. four was Neighbors, and number five and six was <laughs> EastEnders. So the top six shows were all yeah, soaps, all, which was... They're all the soaps. But, yeah, that's I, But crazy. the way I think of daily soaps, I think of them as daytime, right? So I even, I texted my friend Gore Blimey, and I asked him, um, did Coronation Street, Neighbors, and the EastEnders run in the daytime or the nighttime? They uh, Coronation Street and EastEnders were British-produced, and they ran... Um, at the peak hours of TV viewing, which I think you said was 7 to 8 yes. p.m. However, Neighbors yeah. was a, uh Australian soap that ran from 6 to 7. And that was curious to me because we don't do our ratings that early, mm-hmm. right? We don't have shows that run that early here. Yeah. And- yeah. yeah, they do. They do. Yeah, they go very early because Doctor Who, like back in the 60s, aired at like 530 in the afternoon. Yeah, it was, it was weird to me. Ratings. And so I asked him if ITV was a syndicated channel. Or was a national channel, and I can't remember the full answer, but I think it's national. I think that's obvious to anybody. I, yes, but I, I asked. I believe I think so, I asked, yeah. but mm-hmm. he said that he. Oh, no, no, no. Wait, I'm sorry. He said I think he said ITV was regional, so that's why we, oh. I think oh, that's yeah, why that's right. regional yeah, yeah. ratings exist. Because even though it was like Fox, yeah. I guess it was the equivalent of what Fox was before it became a full network. Mm-hmm. So like it ran yeah. all over Europe, or I guess great britain or the uk or i don't know he was making fun of me for not understanding exactly where it ran but <laughs> i don't know where it ran but anyway itv existed somewhere in england and, and somewhere around england but it was regional so so when even though these ratings did it sequentially some ratings will have them by like sections of the country and that now it makes sense yeah. to me why so um anyway According to this ratings guide, it came in about halfway into the top 90 shows to air that week, which is not huge. And it's great that it's managed to live on past that. Um, So there's an actor in this named Adrian Rollins, and I'm not sure who he played, but he would uh, go on to play Harry Potter's father which I thought was an interesting piece of trivia because we know... Oh, isn't that that Arthur Kidd? Oh, is it? Or is that... Is that I can look? Yeah, I do. I don't have the cast up. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay, yes. So I he would it is. he would yep, go yep, on to play is, yeah. Harry Potter's father, and that's interesting because you know Daniel Radcliffe played him oh, in the yeah. 2012 remake of The Woman in Black, which I saw and I really enjoyed. Have you guys seen that? I have not. Nate, I haven't oh, either. It's totally different. It has a different ending, um, but it's a really good movie. And talk about grief and loss. Uh, what I like so much about the film is. Uh, I thought Daniel Radcliffe was excellent in it, but he plays a guy who's like a grieving, I think he lost his wife, maybe a child, I can't remember. And he's he's haunted through the whole film, and his performance is outstanding. And it's a really, really good movie. It's very heartfelt. It's different. It's got a more feel-good feel to it. But I think it's worth seeing, um, for sure. So I had a real hard time figuring out where the Eel Marsh house was and what it was. So I... Th- Apparently, obviously, there's a house that looks like that somewhere in England, and apparently, there's a Crithen Gifford that exists, but I, it, it's sort of near what's called the Nine Lives Causeway, 
uh, which floods in high tide and blocks all access, and it's surrounded by marshland. Oh, I love it. Yes, but I don't know that there's really a place called the Eel Marsh House. However, that house did go for sale recently, and they called it the Eel Marsh House. So I and it was purchased by a Mr. G. Blimey. Yes. Oh my God! I wish. I wish I would be there in a second. Um, to visit, but like, it totally looks different now. They took all of the character out of it. It's really modern. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, the exteriors, I think, are the same, but the interiors are, I didn't really care for what I saw. But the thing is, is that I don't know that it was called the Eel Marsh House before it was shot there. I don't know. I couldn't figure out, I couldn't dissect what it was. So anyways, apparently there's a, really a place called Crithen Gifford, and there's really an Eel Marsh House. And if anybody's been there and wants to tell me about it, please email me because I'm super confused about it. So Susan Hill was the novelist. And I always have a hard time researching things that are outside America because I just don't know the history or the area as well enough to talk about them. But mm -hmm. So Susan Hill was the novelist. What I thought was so interesting was that she lost a child between oh. 1977 and 1985. So she had three children. She had a child in 1977. She had a child in 1985. And somewhere in there, she had a child who died in infancy. And I don't know if that child died before or after The Woman in Black was written, but I think it was before. And she refuses to, to admit that this book play had anything to do with her losing her child. So I pulled a quote from her. So, um, Or I pulled a quote from an article which has a quote from her. So it says here, Hill has two daughters, Jessica, as well as Clemency, and recently became a grandmother. A middle daughter, Imogen, or Imogene, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, died in infancy. But Hill denies any connection between this experience and the subject matter of the woman in black, in which the ghost is a woman destroyed by the loss of a child. Quote, I think the two are completely separate, she says. I wrote ghost stories because I'd always enjoyed reading them, and they seem to be fizzling out. I don't take them terribly seriously. It's like a cake with ingredients, end quote. But I don't think I agree with her. I mean, I know that's her saying mm -hmm. what, what it's, why she wrote it, but, like, you think about Frankenstein, right? Sure, and yeah. and movies, mm -hmm. and or, or even, like, um, oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> sorry. Francis Ford Coppola's, <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Was yeah. he obviously didn't write Dracula, but he made that movie after his son died. And do you remember that the tagline was something like "Love never dies"? Like yes, yeah, I saw that like three times in the theater, and I don't remember why. No, I don't yeah. either. It's not a very good movie, but it's not. It's it's got it's it's. Well, we're yeah. not going to go into a, it's another podcast. But yeah. <laughs> but I feel like Francis Ford Coppola was drawn to that life everlasting yes. thing because of the loss of his son. Right. So it's hard for me to read mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this quote from Susan Hill and think that she really means it, but whatever. Yeah. And she's a pretty controversial character. It turns out a little bit because she got kind of political recently at a bookstore when, um, they were doing some kind of giveaway where they're giving away books that were supposed to inspire resistance. And, um, she believed that that was unfair to Donald Trump. And so she, <sighs> I think she was supposed to do a signing or something at the store, and she was like, I'm not going to do it. And it, it actually caused quite a bit of controversy. Now, her argument was that oh. she wasn't necessarily pro-Trump, although she didn't say either way. It was that she felt like they wouldn't have books against Obama in this bookstore. Mm. And I don't know. I don't know the bookstore, and I don't know. I just know that it created a problem. And I don't want to get political because I'm sure we have all kinds of different people listening. I'm just telling you that she created yeah. controversy recently. Um so anyway, and then uh, I'll just go a little bit into Nigel Neal, even though I think you covered the the core of it. Um, like you said, he's probably most famous for Quatermass. You know, so it's interesting. When I always think of Quatermass, I think of uh, Prince of Darkness because he he oh, wrote it as Quatermass, yeah. right? He used a pseudonym, and the pseudonym was 
Yes. With something yeah. queer mass. Yeah. Um, he also did, a, yeah, yeah. Nigel Neal did an adaptation of Wuthering Heights, which I'd really like to watch because I hated that novel and I'm sure he could oh. make it good. Um, oh, it's so horrible. <laughs> I did. I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I almost, I almost loved that novel. I, every page I wanted to love it. Then I got to the end and I didn't love it. I didn't know what to do I, and I didn't know who to turn I to. Tur- I, I couldn't finish it. It's just a bunch of whiny. You turned it It's just a bunch right? of whiny oh, people. Good getting the vapors and shit yeah. i hated it um i love jane Eyre, which is the other bronte sister but whether yes. Heights, yeah. no that's shit but anyway the fact is neil uh neil also wrote one-off television dramas of the cal i'm pulling this quote from somewhere now i don't know where i pulled the quote so the fact is neil also wrote one-off television dramas of the caliber of the year of the sex olympics which is an astonishing oh, yeah. prediction of today's big brother culture and the stone tape one of the most chilling ghost stories ever broadcast okay. on the bbc he adapted legendary versions of the 1984 oh of 1984 and of lord of the flies for the beeb scripted films of the caliber of look back in anger and the entertainer and gave us wonderful itv projects like his offbeat anthology series beasts Nigel Neal was born in Barrow in Furness, then in Lancashire, Lanc- Lancashire, but grew up off the Isle of Man, which is where I believe they shot um, Madame X with Betty Davis and Robert Wagner. There, oh, that's, yeah, that sounds right. There's yeah. always been a traditional belief on the Isle of Man in things you can't quite see, he said. He studied for the Manx bar, but grew bored. So I guess he was going to go to law school, or he didn't, and decide he didn't like it he then trained as an actor at the royal academy of dramatic art briefly carried spears in shakespeare's plays at stratford upon avon avon in 1950 when he was 27 his first collection of short stories tomato cane won the somerset somerset mom award how many words can i mispronounce while i read this when he was young sorry <laughs> please continue. when he was young Keneal. <laughs> See, that's how I'm going to mispronounce everything. Enjoyed writing stories. In 1946, at age 24, Keneal made his first broadcast performing a live recording of a short story, Tomato Cane, on the BBC radio. In the same year, he moved to London, England, where he studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, followed by two years' work at the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon, which I just said. I'm just repeating this. During this decade, sorry, he made further broadcasts and published Tomato Cane and other stories in 1949, which he won the Somerset Mall Award. Okay, his stories on BBC radio were popular. After the stories were collected and released as an award-winning book. Neil decided to turn his attention to writing scripts in 1951 after a couple of his radio dramas had been produced. He was offered a job in the drama department of the BBC still-fledgling television unit. His specialty would become adapting popular stories and classics for the small screen. Um, so real quick, I want to I want to just plug somebody's book that I haven't read yet, but I believe it's probably going to be really good. I know the author, and he's a great guy. It's called We Are the Martians, The Legacy of Nigel Neal. It is uh, mm. by Neil Snowden. Um, apparently, you can buy it on mm-hmm. hardcover for $240. I'm in. <laughs> so save your pennies and pick that up. I don't know why that's so expensive. Mm. Um, maybe because it's a British mm-hmm. release? I don't know. Can Can I just say, I, I think the thing with Nigel Neal with Quatermass when it originally appeared was it was, I think it was like one of the first h- huge things on like British television that like everyone watched sort of sort of thing so so it's like he he's he, he he's kind of like I, I i don't quite know what that means but but it's like i know that i have seen the episodes of quatermass that exist and i know that that was so huge but it was in the early 50s when you know like even in america it wasn't until like 52 53 when like tv surpassed radio right. 
and that never quite happened. That never quite happened in Britain because Rado's always gone. But I always feel like Nigel Neal is one of those names. Is it Magritte, uh, the the French detective series they did in the early fifties, which is lost, is is sort of cited as one of the big series that everybody watched. And I think Quatermass is one of the other ones that like that got people and it was like a queen elizabeth's coronation that made everyone buy tvs but i think it was quatermass and stuff that like pulled people in which is pretty fascinating i think because if you watch a woman in black you go wow this is pretty smart i know the average american i can't imagine them watching this so you know it's like it's, it's pretty cool i think yeah so yeah he's he's basically a cultural moment is what you're saying like he, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's like a popular, like pop culture, like moment where like um, uh, the smart hit the hit the hit the fan. I don't know if that's a thing, but it hit the fan. <laughs> it's and a thing it just today. came back at us. It was, yeah. So, so okay, yeah. so one last piece of trivia, and then we can go on to the next movie, so we can get Nate in here for all of it. Um, yes. Dir- director Herbert Wise directed uh, both U.S. and British productions. He worked on something called Skokie, which I recognize as a CBS TV movie. And he also directed some episodes of Tales of the Unexpected, which I would really like to see because he obviously knows what he's doing. Um, and I have some of those, and I just haven't watched it. So anyway, that's all I think I have for my background on this. I kind of wish I had more, but I didn't have as much time as I would have liked. Oh, I do. I, oh, no, no, that's funny of Sarah Hardy. No, I don't have more trivia. <laughs> I've got paper I, everywhere. I, I, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Can I just have one more bit of trivia regarding Coronation Street? And, and that, Unless it involves quickly, a woman in black, uh, I don't want to hear it. Oh, okay. I was going to say you didn't put shows up against Coronation Street. I, I Maybe you still don't. But at that time, if you put something up against Coronation Street, it got killed. And 1987, 88, 89, um, they put Doctor Who up against Coronation Street because they wanted it to get killed. And it actually did quite good, but it didn't do great. And the woman who plays the wife of... Tuvi, Spider's mama mm-hmm. there, she was actually in one of the last um, seasons of Doctor Who that was mm. up against Coronation wow. Street. She, she was a villain. She played Lady Painfort in the 25th anniversary show, uh, Silver Nemesis, who goes up against the Doctor. Uh, but, but yeah, so when you mentioned Coronation Street, all I could think of is, son of a bitch! Because it's like those Brits, They during that time, they like all the top shows were the soap operas that aired once and never aired again. So all the other shows that would air more than once or might get some release elsewhere didn't get ratings as high. Sure. When Sarah was a little girl, she watched her mother go insane. Mother? Then she watched her mother die. Mother, no! Fifteen years later, Sarah wants to put the past behind her. With this ring, I do it. But Sarah's past won't leave her alone. It may not even leave her alive. Sarah. Mother? What exactly are you saying? I mean, are we implying here that maybe she's still alive? Who's there? Something scared that girl to death. Sheila Ward, Morgan Fairchild, Michael Woods, and Polly Bergen. The Haunting of Sarah Hardy. A USA world premiere movie. So here we go. Uh, a Haunting of Sarah Hardy begins with, and I've got my notes for Woman in Black here. I'm sorry, everyone. Um, with the death of a gentleman um, named Malcolm York. It's 1974. We're at his funeral. 
And his, I believe she's 11? Yes. She might be 12. She's 11. She's 11. She's 11. And um, uh, Sarah, Sarah, a cute little gal, is standing by the grave. I, I, I don't mean to sound that, make that sound stupid. She's standing by her father's grave. Um, but she's standing there with her mother, uh, Dorothy. And Dorothy is... <clears throat> not, not in Oz. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Dorothy. Dorothy. Dorothy is the person in Oz who's crazy, rather than our Dorothy in Oz who's lovely. But this Dorothy is like she's like say goodbye to your father, and she's just she's just so weird at this this funeral. And like you could see all these people standing around looking at Dorothy and Sarah, like oh Dorothy's doing it again. Okay, let her let it ride. Um, Dorothy, the 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 Yorks. So I was going to say the Hardys. The Yorks live in a house called the Pines, and it is. I think it's it's a mansion in like Pittsburgh no, or something. They, they, they uh, shot like it in Oregon. Oregon. It's Oregon. I'm sorry. Okay, it's Oregon. Why did I think Pittsburgh? I'm a. I'm I a wish um, Pittsburgh. I uh, mean, Pittsburgh's beautiful. I lived in Pittsburgh for a number of years, oh, yeah, but it doesn't yeah, look like that. I'll probably come up later on why I said that. But yeah, so they're at this, this beautiful uh, mansion called the Pines, which is near, I imagine it's near the ocean, but it also might be near a lake. I don't remember where. It's near a body of water. And so everyone is there for the funeral afterwards, and they're having a great time. They're having out. a great time. And they're having a grand old time. And, and Sarah... Um, Emily Stepford, who is sort of the... Um, uh, what would you call her? Like the... Uh, She's a caretaker, um, housekeeper, uh, she, nanny. Yeah, I guess she basically does everything. Yeah, yeah, and, and she says, "Sarah, your mother wants to speak with you," and so and it'll be okay. So Sarah goes in to talk to her mom, Dorothy, and Dorothy is playing a harpsichord <sighs> harder than like Tori Amos has ever you played know, a harpsichord. That's what's so funny is that music's at the very beginning. And before you realize that the mom's playing it, and you're like, oh, my God, this is obnoxious. And then she walks into the room, and the mom is playing and it. And you just thought it was this obnoxious score, but it's kind of this funny score. moment where you're like, oh, it's, it's the mom. That's the harpsichord. Yeah, it's like I'm a huge fan of Baroque music, so I, I do love the harpsichord. But there there hits a certain point where you need to have a tune when you play the harpsichord. So, so she goes in, and the mom is just like, I your father loved you the best and just you wish i Does was she sound like that like a dude uh, I, I i'm sorry i'm doing like my death metal voice <laughs> yeah i still wish you were dead and 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 she basically says to sarah tell me you wish i was dead and sarah's like she is the most terrified little girl you've ever seen in your life. And she says, I wish you were dead. And she storms out. And Mrs. Stepford is like, oh, my oh, Miss Stepford is like, oh, my God. And Miss Stepford says, OK, let's Sarah needs to go somewhere else tonight. And at that point, you meet, is it Alan and Lucy, yes. who are two of her best friends? Lucy is we'll learn more about Lucy later. Alan has they're they're great kids. And Alan is like, uh, she can stay with me. Lucy is like, no, no, she'll stay with me. But uh, but a little later on, and you could tell Alan because he has glasses, which kind of sets him apart. Um, but a little later on, unfortunately, Sarah kind of goes back into the harpsichord room. I'm sure there's a name for that room. And she finds out that her mom has taken a picture of her in a frame and shattered the glass and and stormed out onto the beach. She rushes after her mother, who is going into the water, screaming, Mommy, Mommy, no, Mother, please, no. And apparently, Dorothy drowns. They never find the body. 
but she drowned. So we flash forward ahead. I, I think, believe it's 15 years. And um, we are, well, well, we meet up with um, Sarah as she's marrying a guy with the great name of Austin Hardy. <laughs> and, and, and they get married and it's sweet. And we're going to, we learn that they're going to move back to the pines, but there's a great moment where um, uh, uh, Austin and Sarah meet. I'm going to get lost in the names. Alan and Lucy. I want you to meet my two oldest friends in the world. This is Lucy Milgram and Alan Davidian. Congratulations, Austin. Thanks, Alan. And Lucy, of course, I recognize. Since when do stockbrokers get time to watch soap operas? Whenever we get a chance to watch you. You better watch quick. They're writing me out in two weeks. Oh, Lucy, what a shame. I'm really sorry to hear that. Oh, don't worry about me. Death scenes are what an actor lives for. Where are you all going on your honeymoon? Virgin Gorda. And then home to the pines. The pines? Mr. Hart, I see for Excuse me a sec. And uh, whose idea was the pines? Mine. And Austin's. He thought it sounded perfect. But what a nervous breakdown. Cute, Lucy. I am not afraid to go back to that house. Oh, right. That's why you've been avoiding it for 15 years. Maybe that's true, but now that I have Austin, I can finally face what happened at the Pines. Does that sound hopelessly romantic? Now that you mention it. So I made that clip as long as it was so I could hear Roscoe Bourne's voice there. He plays Alan, and he is <laughs> heavenly to me. I've been in love with that man for as long as I can remember, and we will talk about him. But, the, you know, what's also yes. great about that clip is pretty much if... You've seen The Haunting of Sarah Hardy and you rewatch it, almost the entire plot is laid out right there. Like all the twists, yes. everything is telegraphed right there. And it's actually a really well done scene because there are parts of the it that I think seem obvious and there are parts that don't. And when you go back, you can see exactly how, what all of the relationships are to each other. And where mm -hmm. it's heading, and it's just so well done because that was a that was just slightly over a minute, and basically that's the movie. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. That's the that's end of my it for you. Just isn't that clear? And, <laughs> and you know, you know, I will say I I embarrass myself. I actually have a a note here, Piddick Mansion, Oregon. So why did I say Pittsburgh? Oh, Pittick, oh Pittsburgh. Pittick. I the Piddick and Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh fudge. Okay, okay. So they go. They go, um, uh, well, and then little weird things begin to happen. Um, uh, uh, lilies, which are sort of uh, the, the flower, which are related to her mother, kind of show up in Sarah's life. And Sarah goes back to the house, and Miss, uh, Ms., Ms. Stepford is kind of treating her like she's 11 or 12, which is a little weird. And, and Sarah and, and Austin have a couple of nice nights together but then things get weird and i'm gonna mix this up i i said this to myself a few hours ago i'm gonna mix up some of the women in black things with women in black woman in black things with haunting of sarah hardy but she starts to get like she hears noises the harpsichord seems to be playing i think although i feel like it might be on the soundtrack but i also feel like it's playing for I real think it is i she think thinks, she notices it at some point the soundtrack is playing. There are lilies, which she didn't realize were there, which Mrs. Miss Stepford is like, oh, we've always had lilies. Those are kind of my mother's, and it's crazy. And, and it's like she gets phone calls that seem to be from her mother, and 
are there notes? Am I thinking, or am I thinking of something? I don't think else? It's notes. it's just, oh, okay. I made that one up, folks, <laughs> but that's okay because that's how ghosts. Well, there's like work. Women, there is a but, woman in black, and she's like hanging yes. out and stuff. Yeah. So so what happens is um, as Austin is doing his job, um, he's like a he's like a 1989 business guy. I think he's like a stock. I don't. I, I can't remember something. if he's a stockbroker or some kind of financial person, but he's in money. He's, you know, he's he's a good looking he's guy. Michael he's Michael Woods. Of course, he's good looking. Yeah, of course, of course. Not as good looking as Roscoe Bourne, and I'm just going to put that out there. Of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention him in a moment again. But Sarah, she begins to. There are things that are creeping her out because she almost feels like her mother, whose body was never found, might still be lurking on the pines that she has not been on for so long. And she goes to talk to, to Roscoe Bourne, Dr. Bourne, Dr. Bourne (laughs) is, um, so she goes to see him and he's a psychiatrist. Yes. And, um, uh, and she goes to talk to him about uh, what she's seeing, like these weird things, like these phone calls and and images and the harpsichord playing and the lilies and things like that, which are bringing back all these memories of her mother. And it seems a bit like Mrs. Uh, Stepford is uh, Miss Stepford uh, might be involved in this in some way. And then she goes to visit her friend Lucy, who looks a lot like Morgan Fairchild. And she is she's a soap opera actor uh, actress and and they kind of talk a bit and stuff like that and it becomes a bit of a um, are you really seeing crazy stuff maybe you're not I don't know and then there's there's this great scene where uh, Sarah gets a call from um, uh, someone on the phone who pretends to be her mother and she does a great thing where she sets the phone down and I love this so much she begins to sort of run through the house. To the other phones, which is something you don't see that often. And she finds Ms. Stepford on the phone. What's the matter, Miss Stepford? Did I interrupt something? Oh, no, dear. I, I was just making a call to my sister. Oh, to your sister. Is that why you hung up so quickly? Well, it was long distance. My sister lives in Grand Rapids. I, I meant to ask your permission, but. But. I didn't want to disturb you. you you've, uh, you've been so touchy lately. I wonder why. This is a month's wages. I want you out of here this afternoon. What are you talking about? I, I was only making a call. Get out. Did you really think this house belonged to you? Do you know how many years I've been with your family? Too many. Sarah, I'm your friend. So this is kind of an interesting thing because Alan actually encourages Sarah to fire Mrs. Stepford. And mm-hmm. and yeah. so, but what's so interesting is that you start to wonder who's doing what to whom at one point. And yes. so I think that that's a great way to, to kind of wonder if Alan is one of the people that may be behind what's happening at the Pines. Yes. Yes. And I will wrap up my uh, synopsis when um, one of the scares uh, makes Sarah pass out and she learns that she's pregnant. And they throw a big party 
And there's a guy named Biff who shows up. <laughs> of course. I, I, I love that they're, they're so wealthy. There. But this is during a uh, – uh, uh, it's not during a blizzard, but it's during a very snowy time. And this is the point when Sarah begins to see a woman in black. And she goes out after the woman in black, pregnant, into the snow. And part of me wants to tell you the next thing that's going to happen. You might be able to guess it, but I'm going to stop here. But let's just say that someone is haunting Sarah Hardy. Is it her mother, dead or alive? Is it someone else? Is it her becoming as insane as her mother was? I don't know. Maybe we'll ruin it. Maybe we won't. Maybe you should watch a freaking movie. I'm going to okay. stop. All right. Um, so who had seen this before? No. I had no Okay, idea. so all start since I've seen it. Um, so I saw The Haunting of Sarah Hardy. Okay, so I've had it on VHS since, like, it originally aired. And it sat in all my TV movie VHS tapes for, like, two decades. And one day I was living in Maryland and I had this treadmill in my office and I would sometimes put on movies and walk on the treadmill for like 90 minutes while the movie was on. And so I started going through all my old tapes and I was like, let's start watching some TV movies I haven't seen. That's where I saw Bay Cove for the first time. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch The Haunting of Sarah Hardy. I've never seen it and it's sitting here and it's staring at me. And I put it on and I fucking loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And um, I couldn't believe I hadn't seen it before because it's so up my alley. It's everything. It's got that whole gothic setting, but in a modern times. It's got the beautiful woman that, you know, is in peril, but she's really smart and she's a great character. And it's got good-looking dudes in it from soap operas. And it's got Morgan Fairchild. And it's got some pretty good scary moments and has a couple of unexpected twists. And it's got that ending, which terrified me the first time I saw it. And, and so... I was like kicking myself that I'd never seen it before because it was so good. It had Polly Bergen in it. I mean, I can't even tell you all of the pluses of this film. Now, it's certainly not as nuanced as something as The Woman in Black, but in its own way, it's just as good. It's it's a classic ghost story, quote unquote, and it's really well done. And it's led by a really capable actress with a lot of supporting cast members who are equally as good as her. And it's really engaging. It's beautiful even though it's got kind of a static late 80s tv movie look to it it's still got a lot of uh flair and it's got that house that house is so amazing it's so amazing and there's this really great scene when you're talking about like when they first got together as a married couple and they were having a lot of sex and everything and there's a scene with her laying in bed with her husband austin and the camera starts from above where it's just total blackness and then it kind of pans down to them in bed together, laying there talking. And it's like they're not even in the full of the frame. They're just at the bottom and above them is nothing but darkness. And it's totally telegraphing the film. Like there's so many moments in this film visually and in the dialogue that are kind of telling you what's happening. And one of the things that I love about that scene in particular, watching it this time, is which I watched on the elliptical because apparently I have to work out when I watch the one, uh, Sonny of Sarah Hardy. I've just decided I always have to work out when I watch it. But like the, um, the, of yeah, course. it's just how it works. The, uh, <laughs> the, um, I forgot what I was going to say, the blackness. Uh, well, so what they're saying there is a couple different things that maybe we shouldn't be taking Austin at face value because there's darkness around him, right? It's saying that. So it's a metaphor, right? Done visually. But it's, 
also giving you this idea that there's you're never going to get a sense of space in that house. It doesn't do it as well as a woman in black. The thing about the woman in black is that there's a couple rooms that you kind of know what's going on, but you don't really know much about the house. And so when they're walking around it, it almost feels like you don't know where you are sometimes. Sarah doesn't do it as well, but there's definitely this idea that you're not going to understand your sense of space. And so when Sarah doesn't, fully understand where she is she's back in her home that she grew up in as a child but it doesn't feel like a home anymore and so I think the blackness in that I think that scene is so important besides the fact that he's not wearing a shirt and he's gorgeous but like you know it's got all this other stuff happening around the fact that he's a beautiful guy and so um so I love the way this movie um is made just everything about this movie to me is so good I don't know if it's my favorite tv movie ever made or anything like that but but I could watch it over and over again and enjoy it just as much every time because it's just in such capable hands. It might not be something new and it might be even a little predictable to an extent, but but it's still really good at what it does. And, um, and I love it. I love it. Um, I can't tell you how much I love it. And I only watch it every so often, but it is a movie that I could probably put on a loop one day on a nice rainy day in the fall and probably watch like two or three times and enjoy it just as much every time. I think it's that good. Um, Nate, what do you think of it? Um, I enjoyed it. I probably didn't love it as much as you do. But who um, does? Who does? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, to me, any movie with Morgan Fairchild is awesome. Um, just because I love her so much. Amen. Um, yeah, so I, I'm glad that y'all agree with me on that. <laughs> but she can make any movie better. Sure. Uh, but no, this was a good movie to begin with. Um, like you said, it has some twists and turns in it. Um, I, I did kind of guess them, but it's not... I don't necessarily know if it was because it was very obvious or anything. I think it's just because I've seen so many movies in my time that like I, I kind of... Uh, get a, a little bit better at guessing twists, I guess. Um, I really don't know how I feel about the ending. Mm. I'm, it's a little up in the air for me. I don't yeah, know if I, I like it or it not. It freaked me yeah, out. I, 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 think I, I think I'm with you there, Nate. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to, but I don't know. To me, um, it's, it's a far cry from, say, an ending like in Don't Go to Sleep. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's not to say that it's a, it's a bad movie at all. Because no, I really love the movie. It's just when we got to the ending, I don't know. I just I felt a little unsatisfied, even though I thought it was very creepy. I was a little unsatisfied overall. But I mean, it's still a fun movie, and I would definitely recommend anybody check it out. I think the actors all are all very capable. They do uh, a good job in it. Um, I wanted, uh, well, I can't say that without spoiling it. I will talk a little more when we spoil okay. it, but I've got something to say when we do okay, that. Cool. Okay, cool. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so Dan, what did you think of it? Um, <clears throat> all right. Um, Uh-oh. I, 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 well, um, okay. Um, I, I've been trying to sort through, I, I've, I've actually watched this three times over the past week, trying to sort through what I think of it. I think the movie is really wonderful until it's big twist about like 55 mm-hmm. or so minutes in the moment that <clears throat> the moment that big twist happens. All I could think was I've seen this so many times before this better be the best and it ain't the best. I don't think I think the last half hour um, <sighs> kind of testing my patience. 
Um, and and the ending, like like Nate said, the I got to the ending and I was like, okay, okay, oh yeah, okay, all right. I wish I wish it 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 got to me more. However, having said that, I think the first eh, the first half of it is it it's 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 not it's not reinventing the wheel. It's um it's doing things you've seen before. Um, but part of the joy of, I mean, okay, here, here's me. I'm a jerk. Um, you, you know, I mean, we all love slasher films and you know, it's like by 1989, I'm still loving any slasher film that comes out. So to denigrate a haunted house or, or uh, like a ghost story, it, it seems like I'm being a hypocrite, but, um, I, well, it's just a tasting. It's just what you prefer. Yeah, it's it's um it, it, the the okay. So here's the thing with haunting of Sarah Hardy is I, I I like the opening very much. The moment I realized she's playing a harpsichord, <laughs> all I could think was I want to see that more because I love a good harps. I'm a big fan of Bach, you know, Mr. J S Bach, and he's got a lot of harpsichords. So I love to hear I well, love to hear that. It's also that. funny. Like in the movie's not funny, so it's like this weird scene that you would see in a different type of film. You yeah, know? it's it's it 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 does like a what is it diegetic and yeah, yeah, non diegetic yeah. where it's like you you think you're hearing the harpsichord on the soundtrack, but then you suddenly you're hearing it on the well, well it's that Wait, that, it's, that right. it's a self aware oh, yeah. moment because they know it's like yes, really overbearing exactly. and then but then they're like oh but the woman's actually playing it in the other room it's not just the score yeah. and so so that's that's almost like postmodern but then the rest of the movie is old school you know what i mean yeah it's it's like it's like um when um uh the lead act the lead guy cleavon uh, little in uh blazing saddle is is on the horse and he's going through the desert and you hear like the big orchestra playing and then all of a sudden you see him pass by count Basie in the orchestra. right yeah yeah and that fits there and that the whole film is consistent but this is like it's the only postmodern moment in the film yes exactly so so you see that it's it's like it's lovely and you get the you get the characters and you get these wonderful moments with the uh, very hunky Roscoe born who who is uh, he has his glasses which means he's smart he can't possibly be as good looking as Austin because he wears glasses he can't possibly be the most beautiful man in yeah. the film he can't possibly <laughs> be him did you I thought that too. Is it because in the it, it's almost like um uh like uh like either is it bloody birthday or hospital massacre where like you see like the oh it's um wait there's one of the characters has glasses and you're like you know he's not gonna if he grows up he's not gonna be as good looking as the other characters kind right. of thing you know it's sort of it's sort of like that and but um yeah the thing is yeah like for the first half of it when I didn't know where it was going I really loved it. The moment I realized where it was going, I I had two thoughts. One, I've seen this a lot before, so this had better be great. And I didn't think it was that great. And second, I thought, I think we've seen this on this we podcast. We have, yes. Miss Miss Beller, I yeah, believe. she did it. She um, did it better too. And a matter of fact, if I watched those two movies she, back to back for the rest of my life, I would be so happy. Mm-hmm. That's all I did. <laughs> yeah, no, but. Here, here's the thing, though. Um, the haunting of Sarah Hardy is is a it's a it's a super fun movie. I think I just I just think it fades in its third act sure. because 
um, I, I just, I just, I just don't think it pulls enough um, sort of um, rabbits oh, out just of it. Real quickly, hat. we're referencing No Place to Hide in case people are listening and they haven't heard the other yes. episode, and they can go back and listen to that as well. But we we have to kind of wrap yes. up your thoughts so we can go into the film. Oh, uh, my my thoughts are done in a moment where I say I loved half of it. The second half, eh, yeah. I thought uh, the 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 woman the woman uh, yeah the woman in black is is much better written, and I think much better. Mounted. Well, sure, yeah, it's a different film, but it is it's the same film at the same time because it's got the kind of similar imagery. It's also so, so real briefly. We're just gonna dive into the film, Dan. Sorry, but like, yes. so like she oh, no, passes out in the garden house there, greenhouse or whatever, because she sees what oh, she my. thinks is her mom, and she comes back into the party. I'm sorry, and then she passes out. And then she wakes up in the hospital and she's like, am I okay? And they're like, you're okay. And she's like, and the baby? And then Austin's like, we've lost the baby. And we've come to find out as the film progresses. So anyway, she goes through this. Um, it's important to remember the scene. So she goes through like this depression as you would do if you were a pregnant woman who loses a child. And she starts to kind of go through what looks like maybe she's becoming her mother. And... And she's kind of pushing everybody away. And she's like, Austin, I want a divorce. I'm not the woman you mm, want to be, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And so he's like, I'm going to call Lucy because I'm worried about you. And so Lucy comes and comforts her and then comes back downstairs. And she's like, Austin, she wants a divorce. And then she's like, have sex with me right here, Austin. And then you find out, right, that her and Austin, she doesn't say that, yeah. but you find out that her and Austin are yeah. conspiring against her and they're a couple. And that they're going to basically make it look like she committed suicide. And they do all this stuff where they're going to make it look like she slit her wrist. They give her sleeping pills, and they're going to, like, kill her in the bathtub. And um, and uh, they find out the, the day that they're going to do it or the time that they're going to do it that she's not in her bed where she's supposed to be. And the next day, they get this report that she may have fallen off the seaside cliff right by the house. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. then Austin decides that he's... And that's actually a really brilliant scene where they tell him that they think she's dead. And he's crying, but he's nobody can see his face. And except mm-hmm. the camera. And he makes this really interesting sort of smile. It's so well played. So well played, Michael Woods. He's so good in this. And so... Anyway, he goes back to the house to take care of business, and Mrs. Thetford is like, you know, wouldn't it be great if I had some oh, yes. money? And, it, you know, you, I can't believe I'm not in her will. And by the way, um, I think that you might have had something to do with her falling off that cliff. And so, you know, $10,000 would make me really happy and probably keep me really quiet. And so he's like, okay. And he tells Lucy and Lucy's like, oh my God. So this is the last third. Like there's so much information coming, right? And there, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's crazy. Filled. And so then, yeah. then Austin starts hearing noises himself and he starts to like mm. thinking that Sarah is in the house and so I don't know exactly in what order it happens, but a bunch of stuff happens, <laughs> and Mrs. Stepford starts to increase the m- amount of money oh, she yes. wants. And I'm going to play this clip because I want you to pay attention to the score here. I think it's really well done. So let me just play this for you. Also, Mrs. Stepford's the best. I love Polly Bergen, so. Hello? Hello. Mr. Hardy? Who is this? This is Emily Thetford. You assured me you were going to get in touch. I haven't heard from you. Miss Thetford, I told you you'd be taken care of. Do I get my money or do I get a lawyer? Of course you get your money. What's the problem? All I want is my money, Mr. Hardy. I'm sure you don't want any more questions raised about Sarah. 
I don't know what you're implying, Miss Thetford. Maybe you had better get a lawyer. Something scared that girl to death. And I know it wasn't me. So why don't we just stop kidding each other and get down to business? I told you you'd get your $10,000. Ten? I must have left out a zero. A hundred thousand dollars, Mr. Hardy. Tonight. Did you hear me? I heard you. So that seemed just chilling to me. And it's because the score is so good. And also Polly Bergen is like untouchable. But so anyway, so so everything is falling apart around Austin because she's demanding more money. Lucy's telling her not to pay. And also she's showing up too much. And it looks obvious that there might be something going on between them. And, and Alan's somewhere in the background at this point. And he's starting to get suspicious himself. And I think, I can't remember how it plays out, but he gets this idea that he wants to go visit somewhere and he runs into Sarah. So Sarah is not dead. This is also really telegraphing a lot of John Llewellyn Moxie movies. I mean, Home for the Holidays to some degree and A Taste of Evil. And there's another one I think that has this as well. And so, uh, and I just spoiled all those movies, I think. So anyway, um, so yeah, oh by the way, there's also the LA Times calls Mrs. Stepford, Mrs. Thedford. And when I listen to that clip, I think it is Thedford, not Stepford, but I'm not positive because IMDb has her as Mrs. Stepford. Anyway, so everything's falling apart around him. He doesn't know what to do, and he's hearing noises and blah, 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 blah. And then it all leads to this sort of crescendo where he's at the house, and Sarah's gone to do something. I think she needs some kind of evidence. Oh, this is the part I want to talk about. So what's so important about that scene with her losing the baby is that she needs to find some kind of evidence. Alan's like, you need one piece of evidence to go to the police and tell them what's going on. And so she goes and she finds these canceled checks to her uh, obstetrician. Yeah. And that's when the movie takes a twist that I wasn't expecting. So they had bought off her doctor to perform an abortion on her after she passed yeah. out. That's really dark guys that's yeah. dark and yeah. i don't know that i've ever seen that in a tv movie where doctors willingly performed an abortion on a woman who didn't want one and that really sat with me this time watching it and it's interesting because he the doctor comes into the hospital room when she first learns that her baby had died and he looks like he's really upset and so now it has a double meaning to it right is he regretting what he yeah. did or is it just an expression you know like it's crazy so anyway She's like, she realizes that, like, basically, she had a fully healthy baby and somebody killed it. And so she's like, okay, that's it. All bets are off. And so, um, so anyway, he's at the same time, Austin is coming back to the house to take care of some business. He needs to get rid of all the paperwork that might, you know, uh, prove that he did something. And so he's, he goes into his office and all these noises start happening. And without even thinking twice about it, because he's beautiful but not very smart. He's got his, obviously, because he doesn't say who's out there or anything. He, there's this window that's got that, like, kind of frosty cake to it. And he's like, and he sees this silhouette and he just shoots it, right? And it's fucking Morgan Fairchild in one of her beautiful pink sweaters. So I forgot to mention, she wears pink throughout this whole thing and it's marvelous. And he fucking murders his lover, right? And then, you know, yeah. and all this stuff happens. And then, and then he supposedly, like, takes off and his car goes down like an uh, embankment or something and he dies supposedly in a fire. But I think we all know who's in that car. Oh boy. Yeah. And so what's, and so anyway, at the very, very end, 
Sarah's back at the house and it's very Black Christmas. All the police somehow think they're going to leave even though, you know, whatever. We check the house. You're fine. And so she takes a shower, as you do after something horrible happens to you, I guess. And she's standing there in the bedroom and she hears somebody come in. She's in the bathroom, I think, still. She hears somebody come in and get into bed. And she thinks it's Alan. So Alan, this whole time, has been helping her. He's a good guy. You're never quite sure, even up to the point where he says he'll go identify the body. And I don't know, actually, if it's ever clarified that he is a good guy or bad guy, now that I think about it. So he says he'll go in Sarah's place because he doesn't want her to have to look at her husband's dead, burnt, charred body. And he's gone. And so she goes into into the bedroom, and there's this beautiful dark-haired man with his back to her laying in the bed. And he puts his arm out to her. Yeah, and then so she thinks it's Alan, right? And she goes into bed, and she looks over, and it's Austin. Now, we all know once the hand comes out, it's Austin. But there's something about the reveal of him that really jars me. You know <laughs> what I mean? And then she screams, mm-hmm. and then it cuts to the outside of the house, and then the movie ends. And and so when you think about it, we don't know if Alan actually is complicit or not, because he said he went to go identify the body, but maybe he just knew that uh, Austin had faked his death, and he was just going to let him take care of her oh right okay. maybe they were lovers yeah i i, I never thought of that yeah yeah, it's, yeah no i it's never yeah. clear and if anybody knows roscoe born from one life to live he's a villain to the bone his mitch lawrence who came in and out of one life to live for like two decades is one of the most amazing oh, yes, for the, bad yeah, guys yeah, ever, yeah, 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 yeah. ever. Oh and um Anyway, so then the movie ends, and it's and it's like there's, there's nothing for Sarah, just death and gloom and sadness, uh, right? Uh, and it's like, and it shocks me that like she's such a likable character. She's like Arthur Kidd in that way. She's a protagonist that I'm with through the whole film. You know, I don't think she's dumb. I think she's smart actually, and I think she's really likable. I think she's compassionate. I think she's a good person. And then yet it ends that way. You know what I mean? And so it like it's very upsetting to me and effective. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why I love the movie. So anyway, Nate, you were going to say something about the reveal. Oh, I was just going to say that I felt a little robbed that we did not get a big showdown between Sarah and uh, Morgan oh, yeah. Fairchild. <laughs> the, I was like, where is their big showdown? Fully hair. I love the scene where he accidentally shoots her, though, because I knew it. I knew when it was coming up, I was like, he's totally going to shoot, you know, Morgan <laughs> Fairchild's character. Um and then that happened and I was like, oh, darn, because I really wanted her friend, you know, Sarah, to confront her about what she did. That's a, They were lifelong friends. It doesn't even, like, I know. why? Why, Lucy, why? It's because she was a two-bit actress who couldn't yeah. make ends meet, I guess. But, uh, but you know, it's so great. So I was talking about that clip, that first clip I played at the beginning. And, I, and she talks about, like, it's one of the easiest things for an actor to do or they live to play dead or whatever. And she's playing... Sarah's mom, right? Oh, yeah. So she's playing dead all the time, and she loves it. She loves it. You know what I mean? And so, like, there's so many clues that are given in that scene that are telling you that Austin knows who Morgan Fairchild is because he says so. I always go out of my way to watch you when you're on. And you know, right, looking back, that, like, they're a couple, right? And they're kind of telegraphing it there. And that Alan's just this kind Mm -hmm. of lovelorn hunk, yeah, <laughs> yeah, with his glass, with his glasses uh, on, which means he, but he's he's like a doctor, so it's like, isn't that hunky too? Like, I think she just, he's a doctor. I think I mean, she just always thought of him as a friend, 
And so, and yeah. so it just never came. And, and plus, she stopped living there for a long time. And so, I think yeah. that they just went yeah. their separate ways, and he never got over her. Mm. But, but she, uh, she just moved on. You know what I mean? She never thought of Alan in that way. But I, uh, whatever, whatever. Sarah. You, I know you did. Well, well, I was. But, but in the opening scene, Sarah, Alan, and Lucy are all there yes. at the Pines, which made me think that these were all rich kids. So, so, so oh, like Lucy point, yeah. wouldn't, uh, and Alan wouldn't have uh, problems. With yeah, I don't know. I guess cash. this not really clarified. You're right. I guess it could have been. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe Sarah went to some of the lower classes to make some friends. I don't know. We don't really get no, that. No, we don't. Yeah, movie. we don't really understand her class system setup. But um, but I'm gonna write my <laughs> Marxist theory paper on it next. <laughs> Please okay. do. I have a pen. <laughs> Thank you. you. I use, use my computer. Um. Oh, oh, oh gosh! Okay. I am a yeah. computer. Uh, That's my Mrs. Columbo impression. Compu- so. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, I, uh, go ahead, Dan. I'm sorry. Oh, um, yeah. I, no, I was going to say with Nate, I I felt like there. You put Morgan Fairchild in a movie. She should do a little more. I don't. You you should. She shouldn't be a supporting character unless she's in Mork and Mindy. Oh, so good. Yeah. Where where you know we got Robin Williams and Pam Dauber, so you know, but um, but I did kind of feel feel that um, there and um, yeah, I think um, I I think there are a lot of lot of moments in this film that I really adore, um, uh, but uh, mm, I I <laughs> I was kind of disappointed with it in the end, but um, I you know I can I can yell out uh, some scenes I love. I love the scene in the snow when uh, Sarah goes uh, after someone who she thinks is her mother. Yeah. Uh, because whenever you have snow, I'm in. So, so that scene was awesome. Is the doctor named Burton McMahon? <laughs> he might be. I can't remember. I, I, I got a note here that says, uh, um, checks, abortion, Burton McMahon. So I think that might be uh, something related to that guy, and that was a hell of a twist, huh? I I don't know. That just in a movie where the main characters have a friend named Biff. Yeah, you don't expect. You don't don't expect that one of the twists is going to be that the husband and a best friend induced an abortion. Oh, it's crazy! Yeah, like I think I think it's so. I may have harped on that too much because. No, it, but I, it's, I, it's it, so it, it's so dark. Like I just wasn't expecting that to happen, and I don't remember that from the other two times I watched it. Like I guess I didn't pay enough attention to it. But I was like, "Wow, you have to be evil to the core to do that to somebody. You have to be pure evil to think that that's okay, and, or to get to to get to whatever the means to an end. You know what I mean? To get to your end point. I, I, I and I think the thing that makes it really crazy is the point that. Um, they must have had this set up, uh, Austin and Lucy, before the marriage. I would think. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, so, so the pregnancy wasn't um, anticipated. Correct. So they they would have had to say, "What do we do? Let's scare her to death and knock her out and give her an abortion." It's like, whoa, <laughs> that's that's not that's like, I mean. You know, I watch a lot of crazy horror movies, and there are not a lot of them 
where that would be like because they're so respectable i think uh, in what they do uh, you know it's like well what are we gonna do why don't we just knock her out give her an abortion yeah let's do it all right let's do it rocking you know it's it's just it's such a crazy step to take and one that i don't think that like sane people no. i hope <laughs> no. would take you know but it but, but when they do it it's like when when she sees the the checks and she realizes what's going on it's like Oh, really? I mean, that's in the last half hour of the movie where I was waning a bit. That is the moment where I like set up, not like, like, hey, this is fun, but like set up like, oh, gosh. Wow. So, also, what's crazy sad. is I would like to see the part where they come to Burt McMahon's office and they're like, Dr. McMahon, <laughs> we need to talk to you about this illegal <laughs> abortion that you performed on it on a woman who didn't want an abortion. And, yes. Exactly. You know, McMahon's uh, like, yeah, oh, yeah. man, guys. That's it. His, it's over. It's over, McMahon. It's over. It's over, McMahon. It's, it's all, all over. over. I want to see that part of the movie too. I mean, that was that would have been. <laughs> I bet he um, lost his doctor's license. <laughs> Do you think? Do you think? I mean, as as I think that it, it would be appropriate for him to have lost that and probably be prosecuted. <laughs> and they would have thought Austin I... was dead and Lucy was dead, right? And so he's just last man standing, and so like all of it would have fallen on his shoulders. You know what I mean? Oh. Uh... Yes. Oh, McMahon, McMahon. He wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking. (laughs) I love how we came about McMahon. He's in two scenes. Like, (laughs) but you know what? He needs his own movie. I want to see him get his come up. That's an after the credits. That's an after the credits. Oh, my God. Definitely. I was going to say it's something like The Conjuring with that couple from The Conjuring and stuff. Suddenly you get the McMahon files. Yes. (laughs) And it's like, what the F is this? Douche up, <laughs> and I love the fact that it, I love the fact that his first name is Burton. When's the last time you met someone named Burton? I, I don't, don't know. know. Maybe it's Burton Convy, Burton Reynolds. <laughs> oh, maybe we don't know. Maybe. We don't know. The Haunting of Sarah Hardy. I'll probably give it a six out of ten. Okay. I I give mm. it a twelve. What do you give it, Dan? Okay, yeah. So you you, you bump my score up a little <laughs> I bit. I, I can't help it. It's a comfort movie. It's just a movie I really enjoy. It's just beautiful, and everybody's beautiful, and it's fun. Dan, hey, don't should I should I say something? What are we doing? Twelve or five or what one, are we doing? One out of 10. I got lost in the right. What are we out of ten? One to ten. A one to ten. Um, yeah, I give it six. Okay, good. So so we'll give it. So basically, it's two thumbs up. So it's your two halves so equal one. And then my thumbs yes. up. So we have two thumbs up, and then we have one thumb that's not doing anything. Okay, so The Haunting of Sarah Hardy originally aired on May 31st, 1989 on the USA Network. It, um, I, I couldn't find ratings for it because cable ratings are different, and I don't. I, there was no listing for it anywhere that I could find. But I will tell you a little bit about the mansion. Now, this is a mansion I was able to find some information on. It is called the Pittock Mansion. It is located at 3229 New Pittock Drive in Portland, Oregon. Um, some of it was shot there. Some of it was shot along the north coast of Oregon. Uh, Pittock was built in 1914 by Henry Pittock, a newspaper tycoon who owned the Oregonian. Originally given the paper as a back payment for work as a typesetter, he uh, also would go on to become very entrepreneurial. He built that paper up into something huge and became like a gazillionaire. And then he was an entrepreneur and he was also a feminist. He gave a lot of money to women's groups in the early 1900s. He died four years after the house was built. Um, but it stayed in the family for many years until about 1958 when it fell into disrepair. Uh, but it has since been restored and is now a museum. 
Now, oh, I wish Nate was here for this. Ugh, I forgot why I wanted him here. I you know, know. There are, I know. Do you know what I'm yes. talking about? There are three other movies that were shot here. I know. Body of Evidence yeah. with Madonna, yeah. First Love with yeah. William Cat, and Unhinged. Oh, my god! Yeah, yeah, I know. Cool, right? A piece of favorite, yeah, yep. I'll yep. have to tell him I totally forgot about that. So, um... I'll just briefly now. These are my handwritten notes, so God knows how much sense they'll make. But um, they, let me talk a little bit about Cela Ward, who plays Sarah. I got, I got some handwritten okay. notes here. So Cela so was um, a four-time Emmy winner. She won for both uh, Once and Again and the show Sisters. She also won. Uh, she was also nominated for Golden for four Golden Globe awards. Uh, she has. A, she actually has a degree in advertising. But she started work as a model before she became an actress. Her first commercial was for Maybelline. Um, and she was actually turned down in 1996 to be a Bond girl in Tomorrow Never Dies because they said she was too old. Which is, ridic- which is ridiculous because she's one of the most beautiful women ever. I, I was going to say, though, that's uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. I think that's, that's Michelle Yeoh. Yeah, but there, um, what's her name uh, in it to uh, Terry Hatcher, right? Is that Tomorrow Never Dies? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's Terry Hatcher. Yeah. Yeah. She, but she dies like halfway through the movie, I think. It's Michelle Yeoh is the yeah, main one. But I'm, she, I'm a big fan of Michelle Yeoh. But they just said Yeoh, Bond so. Girl. They didn't say the Bond Girl, like the lead. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah, yeah, I have a feeling she would have been Terry yeah, Hatcher's yeah. character. But Oh, pro- yeah. She would have been great. Yeah. Uh, Roscoe Bourne, um, of course, uh, is gorgeous. Um that's just my trivia. But he was also <laughs> mostly known for his soap opera work. Here's just a few of the soap operas he has appeared on in his career. One Life to Live, Young and the Restless, Passions, All My Children, Days of Our Lives, Guiding Light, and yeah, and Santa Barbara. Um, he was in one other TV movie called Fast Friends, which I think was from the 70s, but I'm not sure. Oh, I'm sorry. And he was also in something called Jailbait Babysitter, which I need to see. Like, Oh, I've what? seen Jailbait Babysitter. That was on a double feature with something that's a fun yeah, film he's yeah he's in that and actually between acting gigs he works as a private investigator um the oh, hell are you kidding no, me something i wish he would investigate me if you're listening roscoe wow. Bourne, if you're listening please investigate <laughs> me please research me please deep dive please so okay so what was so interesting about this is i came across a casting notice in the newspaper saying that Celia Ward had been cast as Sarah Hardy in this upcoming movie. The thing that's so interesting about that casting notice was that it appeared in the newspapers on April 2nd, 1989. Haunting of Sarah Hardy aired in May of 1989, which means that if they cast her around the time that the newspaper article came out, they shot it and aired it in a two-month window. Which is ridiculous, Whoa. and I don't know if I believe that. But anyway, yeah. that's that's what I have. Um, the L.A. Times did not like Sarah Hardy at all. They said it was not much fun or a surprise, um, but they did love the mansion. They talked a lot about the mansion. A newspaper called the Richmond Times did not like it either, and their headline uh, said it was good for a doze. Um, oh, yeah, whatever. They were just a small paper. They were trying to stand out. I'm sure. So <laughs> bunch of yeah, jerks. Jerry London. Um, is the director. He's probably most famous for directing Shogun, but he did many TV movies, including Killdozer, speaking of dozing, and um, yes. and, and a movie oh. called uh, Cover Girls, which is a really great movie starring Jane Kennedy about two models who are actually like agents, like secret agents. 
And and oh. their photographer is Ellen Travolta, and I think she's also a secret agent. And it's really fucking amazing, and everybody should see it. Um, he also did a uh, movie called Ellen Travolta is always a secret agent in my mind. And it uh, he also did a movie called Women in White, and I only wrote that down because we were reviewing this with Women in Black. But the Women mm-hmm. in White is about nurses in a hospital starring Patty Duke. Um, and he often directed two to three movies a year. Polly Bergen, of course, is really famous. Uh, I will tell you, she loved doing this movie because, for those of you not familiar with Polly Bergen, um, maybe I should do her background first before I go into why she yeah. liked doing this movie yeah. so much. So, Polly Bergen actually was a cosmetics tycoon in the mid-1960s. Um, she sold her company to Fabergé, which I thought was an egg company, but apparently they do cosmetics as well. Um, she also uh, has written fashion and beauty books, um, and she began her career as a singer. Uh, it's interesting. She actually sang hillbilly tunes. She's from like a, a southern town, I think. Oh, yeah, wow. and her family moved to L.A., and she had an act, and sometimes I think she performed with her dad. I know she did. She had her own TV show in the 50s called The Polly Bergen Show, and she did perform with her dad there. She was discovered by Paramount uh, performing as a singer, and she did a few movies, but she uh, moved over to TV, and she actually preferred TV. And if you look at her film career, there was like a 20-year gap between Cape Fear, which I guess is her most famous film, to I guess her next film. Uh-huh. Um but she really liked the roles that she was offered in TV, and it probably helped that she had her own show for a while. Um, and, of course, you might recognize her from Crybaby, where she's uh, the aunt. Oh, yeah. She's yeah. so good in that. But anyway, so Polly Bergen was mostly known as being a really glamorous woman. Even as she got older, she played, like, uh, pretty sexy women, and she was really beautiful. And um, when she did The Haunting of Sarah Hardy, she said one of the things she noticed was that, that she was a real plain character. And nobody really asked mm-hmm. her to play these kind of like buttoned up, you know, gray suit like women and really stern. And she really dove at the chance to do that because she felt like it was somebody looking at her as an actress and not just playing a type. And so mm-hmm. she really dove into the role. And I think in that phone call scene, the second phone call scene that I played where she's confronting the husband, I think you, if you really listen to it, you can hear like, it's a really good performance. You know what I mean? And, um, and so she mm-hmm. really dove into the character, which I love. And, uh, and she said it was just great for her to play. And she said when she got onto the set, everybody wanted to put her in really like fancy clothes, like designer wear. Because they were used to her like that. And she's like, no, no, no. This isn't what yeah. the character is like. And they're like, okay, Polly, what do you want to do? And then they kind of let her do it. And she loved it. So um, that was her legacy, in a way, is in this film. So I think that's all the trivia I have about this film. Um, there's Unfortunately, when you do British films and or cable movies, the, uh, feed, the background is harder to uncover. Yeah. Feedback time. Yeah. Oh, yes. By the way, since we're talking about supernatural films, are you ready for this? Transmigrate. (laughs) (laughs) I suddenly suddenly became ready for it as it happened. (laughs) Yeah, that's an important uh, sound clip that I keep on my soundboard at all times because I love it and I always forget it's there. (laughs) I haven't heard that one in a while. I forgot. It's been a while, but I kind of just love it. So, okay, so let's start with uh, Tam. I hope I say her name right. Tamlin on Twitter. Tamlin's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so she wrote, Supernatural domestic gothic is my favorite genre of TV movie, but The Haunting of Sarah Hardy is sadly disappointing in the supernatural department. It's quite good as a straight-up domestic gothic, though. So I asked her what some of her favorite domestic gothic t- supernatural TVMs were, and she said, It's hard to choose, but I adore Bay Cove, Midnight Child, The Lightning Incident, Midnight Offerings, and One Called to Save a Child, which I originally saw broadcast as The Craft. It was apparently the pilot for a TV show that was not picked up, and it owed a lot to Twin Peaks. 
So of all those, I haven't seen to save a child. But now she's giving me a list of all kinds of domestic, gothic, supernatural movies that we can cover at some point. Yeah, we should do the lightning movie, incident yeah. only because it's got a really goofy story behind it um, that makes me laugh every time I talk about it. So I I, I love the title. Yeah, so it's I'm hilarious. Um, the movie's decent, but the uh, just there, there was a court case with the film, and it's ridiculous. So anyway... Oh, um, and then we got an email from somebody named James Lewis, who I think is new to sending us feedback. Um, Hello, hey. James. So he wrote, "Hello, everyone. These are great choices for Halloween. I'm a big fan of the Woman in Black. I used to work at the Car- Carnegie. I hope I said that right. Library of Pittsburgh. Oh, Pittsburgh again. And I remember a woman hey. <laughs> uh, returning this movie on VHS, Natch, and complaining that it was readily available on a shelf for anyone to pick up. She thought it was way too scary for the general populace, especially kids. I thought she was joking, but she was dead serious. I had to call my manager over to talk to her. I don't recall if we ever talked her down, but she was very." adamant about restricting it crazy of course i never seen it before so on her quote-unquote recommendation i picked it up and i have to admit i was a tad disappointed i guess after hearing this woman go on and on about it i was ready for something much much more shocking now many years later i recognize that it is a great flick and i was really happy when later i could connect nigel neal's name and reputation to it I love Neil's work, and The Woman in Black fits nicely with the rest of his writing. If you've never read his short story, Manuk, you owe it to yourself to track it down. Creepy. It's M-I-N-U-K-E, in case um, I mispronounced that, if anybody wants to check it out. And I have not read that, and I would like to. I have not either. The Haunting of Sarah Hardy is a movie I had never seen before until I watched it this past week in preparation for your new episode. What a great picture. The atmosphere is perfectly spooky and the setting is terrific. There's nothing like a big house near the water to make your spine tingle. The (laughs) storyline made me think of Kathleen Beller, the Kathleen Beller movie, No Place to Hide, of course, yes. I wonder how many movies follow this pattern. Main characters being gaslit, so he, she disappears and everyone thinks he, she is dead. But he, she returns in the third act to get revenge or justice. It would be fun <laughs> to look at a bunch of movies that follow this trajectory. One question, though. Was Polly Bergen's character in on Celia Ward's disappearance, or was she just being greedy when she asked for the 100K from Michael Woods? I was hoping that it would turn out that Sarah had contacted Mrs. Stefford and apologized for firing her, and then they worked together to stick it to Austin and Lucy. That would have been a nice turn. Yeah, I agree. I feel like Mrs. Stefford was completely innocent of what was happening there yeah but she did use it to her advantage because she felt like she deserved something but i do think that when you talked about her treating sarah like she was 11 i feel like that was a protective motherly nature coming out in her yeah Yeah. i I saw her as being caring even though it felt overbearing to sarah um Mm -hmm. that's my opinion but the ending was a shock to me too pretty strong ending for late 80s uh, TV movie, I thought. I was expecting Austin to resurface, but I was not expecting the movie to end on such an ambiguous note. Great choice of movies. Keep up the great work, everyone. That includes all of your podcasting projects. I'm really enjoying everything you do. Uh, and then he wrote on a side note, I see that the Miskatonic Institute of Forest Studies is open uh, Los Angeles chapter. Is there a chance any of you is there a chance any of you will be presenting anything in the near or far future from all of, for all of us left coasters? Best wishes, James Lewis. Uh, maybe is my answer. Maybe. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So just keep an eye out. It's really neat. You should go to all the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies programs if you can. Um, I know they've started there, and they had Don Coscarelli, I think, was their first guest, which is, like, yes, amazing. Yep, yeah. So um, keep an eye out. They're going to do really cool stuff. Um, I've talked to Kayla, who who founded uh, Miskatonic, about some of the ideas that she has, and they're going to have some really neat stuff coming up. Um, yeah. So my friend David Assassino, I'm never sure if I say his last name right, um, 
who lives in Austin, <laughs> he wrote, they had Sarah Hardy in VHS for a while at the half price in South Lamar. Totally regret not buying it now. Celia Ward was a magical woman, probably the next Supreme. <laughs> so, <laughs> he, so he hasn't seen it yet, but um, but he's I think he's right about Celia Ward. She's pretty amazing. Um, my friend Michael Ferrari from the Metro, uh, Metro, the Retro Movie Love podcast, he wrote, The Woman in Black for me is one of the best ghost stories ever. It puts most of the modern supernatural mm. stuff to shame. To shame. There are images in this one that oh. will stick with me for as long as I'm alive, and it will probably even last when I'm a ghost who will be haunting your ass for not appreciating it. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree. I agree. Don't haunt me. Or haunt me. It might be fun. We can watch movies together. Oh boy. So, oh boy. So Ronan Farrell, who hasn't written to us in a while, also wrote this. Now I haven't read this yet. He he said something about it being gobbledygook, but I scanned it and I'm positive it's not gobbledygook. So I'm just gonna read it here. So he wrote Hi Amanda, I hope you're keeping well. You are certainly keeping busy. Delighted to see you are spreading the word about T V movies so successfully. Would love to attend one of those screenings at the Alamo. I haven't written in ages, so I'm probably a distant memory to you by now. No, you're not, Ronan. But I have been quietly following your podcast exploits and greatly enjoying enhancing my TV movie education in such fun, entertaining company. I usually only get to see some of the movies after you've recorded the show, so any feedback I have is obsolete. No, you can write about any movie if you have an opinion you want to talk about. I have no problem revisiting these films with uh, the feedback. I was triggered to write you this time because I I am very, very excited about your next episode. As I know I mentioned before, I'm a huge fan of The Woman in Black. It's simply one of the best ghost stories ever committed to film. The story, setting, and performances are all perfect. The attention to detail with the sets and locations, especially Eel Marsh House, really helps to generate a beautifully unsettling atmosphere in this lonely, godforsaken place. I love coastal settings, and this one is really bleak and eerie. And I love the chilling idea of the tide sweeping over the causeway, preventing any attempt to reach or more appropriately escape the house for long periods. The use of the sound is sublime as the tragedy is replayed with terrifying oral clarity time after time while the sea mist rolls across the causeway. We should just have him do the background, or the, the breakdown. <laughs> it's really good. Um, every scene yeah. with the ghost is truly unsettling and gets scarier each time she appears. Just the sight of Pauline Warren's pale, malignant face is more scarily effective than any amount of ghostly extravagant CGI or makeup effects. I'm looking at you, James Wan. Oh, who we just talked about... Um, being inspired oh. by these movies. I do think James Wan keeps the CGI a little down. Like, if you, he uses a lot of optical effects. And there's actually a scene, yeah. the newest Conjuring, that looks like CGI, but it was actually an optical effect. It was really amazing what he did. Oh. Um, yeah. I, 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 Pauline Morin, who plays the woman in uh, black, uh, she, she is known to me and my wife as Miss Lemon in the Poirot series that aired for like. 15 years on the BBC. Not Miss Lemon and the Tall Guy? No, not Miss Lemon. It's Emma uh, Thompson is yeah, Miss Lemon. She, she, said, she said it's yes. a, it's an unfortunate name. And then uh, Jeff Goldblum says it could be worse. It could be Hitler or Tampon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's that's who I think of yeah, when you say Miss Lemon. Yeah, well, when I, when I saw, when I recognized who it was, the woman in black was, I was like, Oh, that's Miss Lemon, because um, she's um, Poor Hercule Poirot's um, secretary throughout um, the Poirot series, and it's like, oh my gosh, and she's so charming, and she would never leap onto my bed and scream in my no. face and make me want to um, go on a boating expedition and have my children die. No, yeah, 
So I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think. We don't know don't though. That's what makes judge. it scary. I don't want to judge. Know. Okay, so I'm going to keep going here. The scene as she hovers yes, over please. kid in the bed. Oh, here we go. Is one of the most genuinely terrifying jump out of your scene oh, moments boy. ever. I've urged many people to watch this over the years, and even the most hardened horror immune viewers have admitted this scene properly scared the bejesus out of them. Special mention also to the earlier very creepy vision of the woman outside in broad daylight among the grass and gravestones when kid first arrives at the house. The acting is excellent. Adrian Rollins' kid makes a good, reluctant lead who just wants to be with his family and visibly comes apart of the seams as he gets deeper into the waking nightmare. Bernard Hepton provides a good, great solid support and some unobtrusive exposition. A great actor who also shone in Robin Redbreast, a great disturbing little BBC TV play from 1970 that everyone should see. I'm going to see it, Ronan. And although Pauline Moran Moran mightn't do a whole lot except leer maliciously, once again, she's never forgotten. I think the great Nigel Neal did a fantastic job adapting the novel for the small screen, so I could never understand why Susan Hill had such a problem with the screenplay and the finished product. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. This really is one of my favorite films of all time. I would include it in the same illustrious company as the BBC Ghost Stories for Christmas series of films from the 70s, which are my actual favorite things of all time. They're great. That's why. I'm afraid I tried, to f I tried but failed to watch The Haunting of Sarah Hardy before the recording, so I'm sorry I didn't have anything to say about it. I'll definitely try to catch it before I listen to the podcast. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the recording, Amanda. As I said, I haven't been in touch for a while, so please forgive me but loving the show. And I finally got you on disc. Not a TV movie, but I picked up Arrow's The Last House on the Left recently, and I'm delighted oh you are part of this lavish release. Say hello to the guys and have a happy Halloween. All the best, Ronan. I'm only including that last part because, um, because uh, I I did I was at the Miskatonic uh, thing and I talked about doing uh, mm -hmm. Blu-ray commentaries and I forgot to mention Last House on the Left and uh, my podcast my not podcasting partner my commentary partner Bill Ackerman was there in the audience and I felt oh. bad about not mentioning it because he was right there and I could have yeah. said it. So yeah. my friend Bill Ackerman from the Supporting Characters podcast and I did the Last House <laughs> on the Left commentary and it was wonderful to be on that with him and we had a great time doing it. And I hope people listen it's to great, it and enjoy yeah, it. It's yeah, great, it's a tough yeah. film, but I hope people enjoy it. Uh, the commentary at least. Um, so that's it for our feedback. And we're going to keep this... Can I just... Yeah. Can I just say it? Uh, I, I just say and we'll go away. Oh, whistle, and I'll come to you, my lad, from M.R. James. That's my favorite of the ghost stories. You know what? I can't remember stories. any of the titles now. Oh, my God. That that title, I love that title so much. That's one of those, oh, whistle, and I'll come to you, my lad, is one of those titles where I'm like, oh, I wish I'd, ri I wish I'd written that story yeah, i i, <laughs> I wish i could remember the titles now because now they're all blurring in my head which ones are which and, and i would tell uh, rona which one my favorite is but i'll have to look it up and mention it next time um yes. so uh we're just going to keep this part really brief this is our little shameless self-promotion yes. part super brief because yes. it's getting too long and i want to edit this in time for halloween yes please yeah so i want to I'm, I'm done i don't have anything going on uh, for once. I mean, I have lots of stuff going on, nothing I can really talk about. I will say there's a book coming out um, called Scared Sacred that I submitted a chapter for. Oh, yes. That they're yeah, doing an yeah, Indiegogo yeah. campaign. I don't know if this will come out in time for people nice. to look at it, but look it up. Uh, Doug Bradley from Hellraiser wrote the foreword, and it's going to be really neat when it comes out, um, and you should pick it up if you're interested in religion in, as it's depicted in horror films. I actually did drama TV movies, but I wrote them as though they were horror films because they were. <laughs> um, yeah. And... 
I think that's it in the things that I can say happen are happening. Um, yes. And that's it for me, Dan. Yeah. Well, day. Um, uh, episode 56 of Avengers Super Train. My podcast just went up. Uh, um, Ellery Queen is done. Uh, Bourbon Street Beat, it continues. Green Hornet is almost done. And Adventure Super Train 57, which will probably be going up around the time this goes up, will have a, a special bit and we'll begin to wrap up Green Hornet. And, um, and oh, uh, uh, around October 15th or 16th, I uploaded 71 10-minute long episodes of the last slumber party minute. So if you, if you go on, uh, if you Google eventually super train iTunes, eventually super train stitcher or, um, soundcloud, you can hear me talk about all 70, 71 minutes of the last slumber party. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. I'm still working on my Henning verse book. I, uh, uh, there are 666 episodes, 666 episodes to review, and I'm now around 340. So, uh, there's a lot going on, but, um, things are, things are going okay, folks. Let's rock Great. on. Shall we? Happy Halloween. And we'll be back next month with the Vixens episode that I had to set aside because of my schedule <laughs> And which means we'll be yeah. back in December with another episode, which I haven't planned out yet because it's so far ahead <laughs> that I haven't really yes. thought about yes. it. But um, so we will keep you up to date on everything that's happening. Again, you can follow us on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast, or you can go on Facebook and look us up at the TV Mayhem Show, or you can just Google the Made for TV Mayhem Show, and um, it's a WordPress website. You'll find it, and um, you can always send us feedback at. TV Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> I did that without having it in front yes. of me. Um, that's good. I finally Hooray! memorized everything. And we will talk to you all soon. Thank you for listening. Godspeed, everyone.